where a diverse group of modelers foking it foking. Sorry. <laughs> Watch your language. Hey. <laughs> Welcome to episode 22 of the Triple P, the Plastic Posse Podcast. We are a podcast all about scale modeling, and we're glad you chose to join us. Well, guys, we have another loaded podcast teed up for the Posse. We have a Modeler's Minute with British modeler Ivan Jensen Taylor, who also is a former scale modeling podcaster himself, as he was a member of the Scale Model Shed podcast. He's also a terrific modeler, and JB and I enjoyed talking to him recently. We also feature our main interview with fellow UK modeler and publisher Chris Meddings, who's the editor and owner of Inside the Armor Publications. Chris has great stories and shares his terrific perspective on scale modeling with TJ and I. So we got the whole crew here today. Doug, JB, TJ, how are you guys doing? So, so good. I'm doing great. I've never been better. That's a bold claim. (laughs) (laughs) That's why I say it. (laughs) <laughs> how is Scott? How is Scott? How you, no Scott? one likes to ask Scott. <laughs> I am great. I am so glad today is Friday. Yeah, me too. Especially when you don't have to work, which I did not. And when this drops, you'll be halfway to another one. I like the way you think, Doug. I'd also like to remind our listeners about our three ongoing group builds, which can be found on Facebook by searching for Plastic Posse Podcast Group Build. As a reminder, the themes are TIE Fighters. Rifle model C3485, which also just went over 400 members in that group this week, which is incredible. So and our newest, yeah, I know, right? And our newest build, the Tamiya Edward 148th Spitfire Mark One or Mark Two. And if you don't have Facebook, that's okay. If you're on Instagram or Twitter, join us using the hashtag PPP Spitfire Group Build and hashtag PPP Tie Fighter Group Build and hashtag PPP T34 Group Build. While we're talking about group builds, Joe Porsche had the awesome idea to do a group build display at Nats this year with all the Rifle Model T3485s that have been built as part of our group build. And he wants to be the Amps guys who apparently are bringing over 60 tanks to Nats this year. So hopefully everyone that's coming and is listening, if you finish your T34, bring it with you. And if you haven't, finish it so you can bring it with you. Yeah, definitely. With over 400 members in that group now, hopefully we can scrape up at least 70 uh, T-3485s. So speaking of the group builds, as you know, we recently launched our newest group build, the 148 scale Spitfire Mark 1 or 2 Tamiya or Edward group build. This group has really taken off. <laughs> taken off. <laughs> it's an airplane. <laughs> we are approaching 100 modelers already participating in this build, and there's some amazing work being done. So if you want to participate, uh, look us up on either Facebook or Instagram or Twitter. Remember, these group builds are fun. There is no hard end date. That being said, while we don't have a hard end for these, we do have a, a, a request for you who are attending Nats. 
If you can finish yours up and bring it to Nats on any of these group builds, please feel free to come on out and bring them with you because uh, we would uh, love to have the completed group build entry so the posse can see it in person and give us the opportunity to talk to you about it. We wanted to let everyone know that episode 22 of the Triple P is sponsored by Terry Wilkinson, Barry Bidinger, and David Bridges. Thanks, guys. We really appreciate the support. These members of the Plastic Posse used our paypal.me link to help us out. We appreciate it. And if you are enjoying the podcast and you would like to help the Posse, it's really easy. It is. Just go to our website, plasticpossepodcast.buzzsprout.com. In the upper right-hand corner of each website page, there is a little heart icon. Just click the little heart and then you can donate any amount you would like. Or if you don't want to donate, that's okay too. You can still support us by taking a few moments to leave us a review wherever you are getting your podcast from. A five-star review will really help us to get the Plastic Posse out to more people who are interested in scale modeling podcasts. Speaking of podcasts, besides the Plastic Posse, there are some other great scale modeling podcasts and social media content providers out there that we enjoy and we like to recommend. First of all, the granddaddy of them all, On the Bench with Dave, Ian, and Julian from Australia. They're on episode 113. Plastic Model Mojo with Mike and Dave from Kentucky. They're on episode 38 talking about the book T-34 Shock, which I'm pretty interested in. Don't know about you guys. Just Making Conversation, James and Malcolm's last episode was talking hobby shops. Scale Model Podcast uh, was on episode 72. And they were discussing the Wonderfest show, which by the time this drops might have already happened. That's Anyway, that's with Stuart, Jeff, and Terry. And then lastly, we have the Model Geeks from here in the U.S. with Darren, Nemo, Whitey, and Frildo. They're talking to the owner of Furball Decals. We also really like the blog Sprue Pies with Frets by our friend Stephen Lee. He's a great writer. It's a lot of fun. We dig Stefan Ezra Bridal's Warhammer adjacent blog. That's a fun one to read as well. And of course, our friend Jim Bates, A Scale Canadian TV, which is a YouTube channel, and he also does a blog on that as well. I want to jump in here real quick uh, with uh, Sprue Pies with Frets. He calls a little bit of a uh, shit show in the Scale Monitors Critique group um, with his latest post, uh, which yes. I think it was the one about the abandoned or knocked squad. out. Not, yeah, the Abram squad knocked out vehicles. It was a it generated a lively debate. So there's you know, wherever you fall on on the you know his opinion, whatever. But the fact that it was causing lively debate, I, I appreciate that. There was a lot some good stuff being said all around. Didn't seem like too many hurt feelings, which is always a good thing. Yeah, I think sometimes. I mean, it's similar to some of the questions we like to ask our guests. I think sometimes it doesn't really matter what the answer to the question is as much as the ability to have those discussions. And I think there's value in that. It seemed to remain civil, which is always good. Yeah. I mean, if you want to get crazy, mention modulation and Panzer Gray in the same sentence. (laughs) But I I would like to go on record that I am in favor of well done, abandoned or knocked out uh, tanks. I mean, not, not just anything, obviously, but one, especially the one that was on the cover, which I believe was by David Parker, that thing's a masterpiece. So hopefully, even if you don't like that, we can all appreciate the fact that that was, I mean, it's just a work of art. Yeah. So I don't think it was done by David Parker. Oh, he didn't do that one? No, he, I think his work only appears in AFE Modeler. Oh, Regardless, okay. it was awesome. Um, and the guy even painted the cow, uh, like the album cover of, um, it's Pink Floyd, wasn't it? Pink Floyd, yeah. It's Pink Floyd. Yeah, he painted oh, okay. the cow like yeah. Pink Floyd. 
Um, so I, I, again, I love the Abrams squad. I think they have one of the best publications out there. You know, it's ranking up there with AV modeler. They have top guys throughout the world, really quality publication. And I love that. I love the, uh, the articles and I love the subject matter too. I mean, I do destroyed vehicles every here and again, and I find them incredibly interesting to look at and certainly not a yawn for me. So that's my stance on it. Anything with Pink Floyd on it is I'm, I'm a fan. <laughs> But hey, you know, people are welcome to their opinions and that what that's what makes the hobby great. So, you know, hey, listeners, chime in. What do you guys think? I don't I don't hear anything. I don't hear anything. Yeah, they're yeah. like, yeah. nope, not touching it. <laughs> <laughs> they like their pens are gray blue. I can I can see that. I understand. I appreciate that. It is As blue people, though, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I like to add a pin wash to mine too. Yeah, there's really no better step in modeling, actually. I think it really is where the model gets defined the most and uh yeah. So I mean, I actually I do I do generally agree with that statement. That is always the best part. Yeah. I made a mo- I made a note of that actually the other day when it, crap it was probably like over a week ago when I was doing my Crusader when I got to the pen wash because yeah. it looked it made it look so much better. Yeah, I mean, it really defines the model. Um, it really takes all the details that are hidden during the base coating and camouflage and makes them pop. So, hey, listeners, tell us what your favorite step is in the modeling process. I know some of us here love the pen wash. What are your thoughts? All right, so the Plastic Posse is sponsored by Goodman Models, the makers of the Super Sanding Blocks. Hopefully all of you guys out there have a set on your bench. You can order these great finishing tools over at www.goodmanmodels.com. All righty, well, it's time for the latest installment of our Modeler's Minute segment. JB and Scott have a chat with Ivan Jensen Taylor from the UK. Enjoy. Thank you all listeners for tuning in today's Modeler's Minute. I'm very happy to introduce Ivan Jensen Taylor. He's a young modeler out of the UK, specializing in armor and aircraft. So Ivan, how are you doing today? Uh, I'm doing very well. Uh, Thank you very much for for having me on. It's been uh, a long time in planning, but we're finally here. Yeah, I'm, I'm super stoked to talk to you. I, I even love your background there. For the listeners who can't see, you know, Ivan probably has one of the cleanest benches that I've seen in a long time. There's a little OCD with the paint as well, I think, going on back there. Yes, each one is in number order. So perfect. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So, Ivan, tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, where to start, really? Um, I, the way I got into modeling was through gaming, actually. I used to play, um, or still now and again, still play it, War Thunder. Obviously, that's a game that involves tanks, planes from the First World War, Second World War, up to the modern era. I've always been interested in, in vehicles and warfare and thing, in things like that. They always used to just pique my interest. But I used to think rather than just sit at the computer and play these these vehicles and things, why can't I be a bit more productive, be a bit more artistic with it? And then I remembered like there was a, a local shop to me, Toy Master, that would sell like Airfix models, really old 1970s molded stuff. But back then I didn't care. It was a model of the subject. So I'd, I'd go in there and I found this dogfight double set of the Spitfire and the 109. I was like, hey, I've played those those vehicles in the game. That'd be cool. Bought it and that's it. It spiraled into thousands and thousands of pounds of spending. And here we are today. <laughs> I don't think you're alone in that regard uh, in terms of spending money for sure. Absolutely. I think uh, modelers are 
probably the biggest spenders when it comes to hobbies. <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. So so how long have you been building models? Uh properly taking it seriously since 2015. That's when I really got stuck into it, decided it's something I wanted to do, bought my compressor, airbrush, things like that. That's when I really started to take it as a serious hobby rather than just something to do sat at the dining table. Nice, nice. And, you know, since 2015, you've been published several times as well, correct? Yeah, my first published article was actually only a year later in 2016, Holy which crap. for me was wow. insane. It was it was part it was never designed to go into the magazine. I built the ICM one thirty two I sixteen, which is a phenomenal, phenomenal kit. Got that built, painted it, weathered it. It was a completely fictional paint scheme. It had white chipped paint on the wings. It was supposed to be some it wasn't a what if, it was it was not really depicting anything specific. It was just an image I saw and I was like, that looks cool. Let's build that. So I built it and I was like, you know what? I'm going to do a little write-up of this kit because it was brand new at the time. Um, so I wanted to let people know what the kit was like. All of a sudden it grabbed the attention of uh, Sammy, uh, Scale yep. Aviation Modeler International. Uh, sent them an email. They, they got back to me. I sent them the write-up, the pictures. And then a couple of months later, it was in the magazine. And then it just kind of spiraled on from there. That's awesome. You know, one, one thing that I've been trying to get my co-host to do is publish an article so, you know, maybe if you could give one piece of sage advice for people that want to write an article, what would you say? The the advice I'd give about writing articles is don't be scared and don't ever think that my work's not good enough to be published. That's just, that is nonsense. Any work at any level, as long as you've enjoyed it and you have something to say about it, is worth reading and worth listening to. Man, that's a fantastic point, Ivan. And that kind of backs up what Brett Green, who was our guest a couple of episodes ago, spoke about as well is, you know, send me the articles. If you don't make the cut, I'll coach you and kind of help you through. But he, you know, he was like, you know, you don't have to have any special, you know, requirements or anything. Just, you know, take good photographs and write good descriptions. And, you know, we can even help you with some of that. So, yep. So Ivan, you talked about starting with, you know, aircraft, but now, you know, looking behind you, there's, there's a, looks like a, a battalion of armor. Tell us how that transition occurred and maybe why do you prefer armor over aircraft? I think night shift Martin Kovac has a lot to do with that. <laughs> <laughs> surprise, surprise. <laughs> Martin is responsible for so many modelers getting into armor. But, but not just to credit him, like John, you as well, your step-by-steps you've done for ammo with that Daswork Panther. Oh, that thanks. was a massive help uh, for me getting into armor. Because I'd always loved the style of the heavy contrast, very strong modulation, which John, you've done recently. Um, <laughs> it's I love it because it, it doesn't have to be realistic. It's very artistic and I love that style. Whereas with aircraft, I love them being very realistic. So it's strange how the different subjects have different styles for me. Uh, for armor, I never used to like it. I actually really, really didn't like armor at all because I thought, well, I'm building it all, but I was really bad at painting them, weathering them. I think it was more of my lack of understanding of what to do with them. Then people like John and Martin came along with these articles and step-by-steps, which made it really simple to follow. And it's like, ah, it's not actually that difficult when it's laid out step-by-step right in front of you. And it's like, I can do this. So I give it a go and it's like, oh, these actually work. These steps work. Whereas I think with aircraft nowadays, which I don't enjoy as much, that 
that's lacking. There's not the same step-by-step processes being shown and the on like on video or in books. It's it's not as it's not as well illustrated, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. No, I, I totally get it. And and maybe you know, maybe the armor modelers are spoiled. You know, we've mentioned Martin Kovac, but look at Mike Rinaldi's tank art. I, yes. I, I maybe challenge an aircraft book of that caliber in the sense of not only the how but why you're doing things. And I know Mike has plans for an aircraft book at some point. I really hope he does it. Um, but you bring up an excellent point there in that regard. Yeah, Ivan, you know, we got some listener feedback um, a few episodes ago from an avid aircraft modeler. And his point of view was that armor modelers tend to be a little bit more of a community and a little freer to share information and collaborate on techniques and things where aircraft armor or modelers, excuse me, tend to be a little more reserved and they'll kind of say, well, I did this and this, but there's kind of a lot of you know, black magic or secret sauce kind of in their, in their approach. What's your perspective on that? Yeah, that is, that's hit the nail on the head, really. <laughs> I think when it comes to armor modelers or people who build vignettes or AFVs, they are a lot more willing to help each other. Like you say, it's very community-based. Everyone wants to learn. Everyone wants to grow together. Whereas, this might sound terrible, <laughs> but I found with aircraft, a lot of the times, other aircraft modelers want to shit on each other. Yeah. And it's such a shame. I'd say if the aircraft or shipbuilding community or any other community was like the armor building community, it would be so much nicer. There, there, unfortunately, with this hobby, there is a lot of tribalism. I just don't find that in the armor. It, it's, 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 it's a shame, but it, it's like it happens in all hobbies. That mm-hmm. It's like, yeah. I've done this, but I'm not going to tell you how I've done this. You're going to have to learn yourself. Yeah. It's like, well, mm-hmm. what's it cost you to show someone else how you got those results? Mm-hmm. You know, Spencer mentioned that, sorry to keep name dropping here, but he he mentioned when he was coming up as a young model builder, he'd go to shows and he'd ask for, you know, tips and helps on his aircraft. And he was basically told, well, I went home and practiced, so go do that. And that was all, all the tips he really, really got. And, you know, he's really made it kind of a focus of of his work to help other people. And, uh, you know, I, I think Ivan, with what I've seen on your Facebook page and the work that you're doing and the way that you're sharing it, I really appreciate the approach that you're bringing to the community as well as your own modeling. Thank you. I, it's, it's strange because obviously for me, I don't feel I provide anything. I just show work I do and that is it. You mentioned Spencer. I've worked with Spencer for over a year now with the magazine when he, when he was doing that. And any time... I needed help with anything. He was there straight away. This is how I did it. Here's some pictures of how I did it. When I went to a model show and looked at his models, he was like, yep, this is exactly how I did it. I can show you in detail. No hesitation to help. And it'd be great if everyone was uh, as willing to help. You know, speaking of of kind of what you're doing right now, uh, what's on your bench? What are some, some projects that you're giving some attention to right now? Well, I just finished uh, the... Tamiya for F14A, the Sundowners Tomcat. Oh, nice. That felt like really it was on my, It felt like it was on my bench for about five years. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad that it's finished. It, it was a gorgeous model when it was finished. I don't mind saying that myself. I was really happy with the results. But my word, was I getting fed up with seeing that on my bench. Now that's gone, I do have a bit of an empty bench, apart from the models you see there. But there's nothing specific I'm working on. I've got a few models here and there. I've got a 109 in the spray booth, kind of nearly ready for primer. I've got a Tamiya Jagdpanzer box next to me, ready to kind of start, but I don't have any big projects. Every time I think I'm going to start one, something then comes up to uh, disrupt that. I've got another room just filled with models that I'd love to build. 
and subjects I'd love to try, but I just never get around to them. So in that other room, <laughs> would you happen to have an Edward or the new Tamiya 148 scale Spitfire Mark One or two? Yes. <laughs> because I know this little podcast that has just started an aircraft group build of those two kits, Battle of Britain Spitfires from Edward and, and Tamiya. Yeah, I've got both of them. So if we can nudge you a little bit, we'd love to. We'd love to have you in that group build. Yeah, that you know that's something I'd love to actually do because uh, the Spitfire is. I think I've only ever built one of them, and that was a long time ago for so, for someone British. It's it's, <laughs> it's strange to not have Spitfires built, and the earlier marks are the ones I prefer. So yeah, that would be right up my alley. That that'd be excellent. Even though I'm a, a yank uh, from over the pond. For I mean, the Spitfire Mark One and Two for me is just—it's really the first true interceptor. It's a beautiful aircraft. It has the classic wing. I just—I've just always loved it. It's always been literally my favorite airframe. So yeah, that'll be really exciting. And we actually even got TJ to go out and get a Tamiya Spitfire to join us in that group build. And he's never done an aircraft. Well, if it's going to be that new Tamiya Spitfire, anyone could build it. Yeah. So yeah, that would be great to see. One thing I wanted to ask you about, Ivan, is when I very first kind of got introduced to podcasts that related to scale modeling, I listened to this little show called The Scale Model Shed, and you were one of the hosts of that show. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, that was um, a podcast that because that was in the early days when there were very, very few uh, podcasts to do with this hobby at all. And so me uh, and my two friends, Graham and Dan, we, we would sit most evenings just in a, a little video call like this whilst we're modeling. And all we do is talk about models and subjects and history. And we'd probably bore each other quite a lot talking about it. And they were like, well, this could have some sort of interest to other people, maybe. It took a long time to get going. We'd sat around for about six weeks trying to work it out, like what segments we do, rather than just hit record and chat. We was like, well, let's try and make a structured show. And then, yeah, born was Scale Model Shed. That name came about because Dan and Graham both have sheds, whereas I'm in the house. So it's like, well, 2v1, they can have the shed. Yeah, it, it, it kind of just grew from there. We did episode one, shared it about, and then it just, with each episode, got more and more popular. The stash or cash sec- section just I love that segment. became oh, insanely so popular. Loved it. Yeah. Yeah. That was that was insanely popular. Like that that section alone, if we didn't edit it down or try and enforce rules of please one entry each, that would have gone <laughs> on for three hours. <laughs> but that was yeah. I was telling Ivan before we, we got going here that, you know, if it wasn't just out downright theft, that I would have oh, stolen yeah. that for the triple P because I I looked forward to that segment every show. I really enjoyed yes. it. it. It was usually always me disagreeing with everyone. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I remember some of the some of the shows you guys uh, wouldn't agree on anything, and it always seemed like right at the very end there'd be one that everyone would finally all line up on. So, and it'd be usually something really obscure, like a, <laughs> yes, a, yes, a flying shopping basket. <laughs> Ivan, you know, in addition to the the podcast, what's I, I lack of better terms? Terms. What's the social scene in the UK for you know younger modelers like yourself? Wow, um, do you go to clubs or you go meet up at shows? Uh, modeling clubs um, recently have just, I think, started back up, or they've been a la- they've been given permission to start back up. I should caveat pre pre pandemic. So. Oh well, um, yeah. <laughs> 
there's it's weird. There's very few okay. young people who attend. There's lots of model clubs and lots yeah. of people attend, but people around my age is very few and far between. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't think there's been there's much being done to attract younger people to modeling clubs because unfortunately the the image I first ever received of a modeling club was a lot of old men going there, having a whinge, and then leaving. <laughs> it's like, that, that's not really for me. Um, I don't want to go somewhere where people are just going to complain about each other's models and then go home. So, yeah, it, it was there was not much attraction for people of my age to be going to modeling clubs. We just we did the big shows because mm-hmm. shows are awesome. There's lots of social. There's things you can buy, see on display. A lot more interactive, um, and young people love interaction. Uh, I think that's a, that's a given. But, yeah, for, for clubs and things like that, Nah, not really. Young no, that, people like YouTube and podcasts and things like that. Yeah, yeah. No, social media has definitely opened up another avenue, I think, for a lot of modelers. You know, speaking about shows, we, most of our, all of us from the Triple P, most of our listeners, all are very familiar with the IPMS Nationals in the United States. I think we talk about it every episode. But one show that we haven't talked that much about, unfortunately, due to the pandemic, is Telford. Tell us about that show. If you go, what you love about it. Yeah, just tell us about it. Oh, wow. Scale Model World is... I I could go on for hours about how amazing this show is. As soon as it's finished, I'm booking my hotel straight away for next year. I love it. It's the best three days I will spend anywhere. It's such a big event. Everyone goes. Like uh, Winged Up Wings, when when they were still a thing, they attended. Anyone who's anyone goes to Scale Model World. This year... Obviously, bit because you've obviously got the green light for yep. the nationals in Vegas, which is amazing. I'd love to attend. Very last minute for me. We're still kind of playing it by ear. We'll know by the end of August if we're getting it or not. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to capacity and the amount of people who attend, it is shocking. Mm-hmm. It's so busy. Like like I said before, anyone who's anyone, you you just spend. Rather than just looking at models, you're spending all your time recognizing people, trying to talk to so many different people. Mm-hmm. Three days isn't enough to fit everything in. There's mm-hmm. a full competition room, which twice I've neglected because it was so busy. All the traders, all the all the display tables, all the companies, all the publishers. It's just amazing. You've just described heaven to John. <laughs> I, can, I can see his eyes lighting up. <laughs> yeah, we have, uh, we have a contingent from our club. They go every other year. And uh, I've been wanting to go the next time just because they say that it's simply something different than the IPMS nationals. And the social aspect there is from what I've heard from them and others, it's, it's a lot different, you know, the special interest groups and their tables and, you know, just how they, people participate in the show itself and the hobby for that matter uh, is a lot different than I think what you would experience at the IPMS nationals, which don't get me wrong, is an awesome show. But there's something to be said about the special nature of Telford because it truly is, you know, an inspiring place. And maybe this leads into my next question. You know, when you look for inspiration and probably more importantly, motivation to, you know, model, uh, where do you find it at? That's tough. Tough question. Recently, I'd say for the past two months, I have had no motivation to be in this room at all. I've not wanted to glue anything together, cut anything off a sprue or even look at this room. So it's it's hard to find it, and I find I can't force myself to come in here and enjoy it. And then Night Shift releases a video, and then all of a sudden, <laughs> no, but it's it's hard. I inspiration comes and goes. Obviously, if I could bottle it, I'd be a millionaire. <laughs> it's it's difficult. Usually, 
it can be anything from just seeing one amazing model on a Facebook page. And that's me. I'm, it's like, I must create something like that. And I, I'm sorry to keep saying his name, but with Night Shift, that newest barn he's just done. Yes. It's like, oh, I, yeah. I, I oh have got to do something like that. Exactly. He He's tremendous. And, you know, he'll be like, oh, I'm really bad at figures. And then he does <laughs> figures and you're like, oh, my hell. Are you kidding me? And then he does that barn and you're just like, oh, my goodness. You you talked to Ivan. You talked about bottling something. If he could bottle up his talent and sell it, man, he could he could retire tomorrow for sure. Oh, absolutely. I have a question for you. You you live in England, and I just it it kind of blows my mind that you've got access to places like the Imperial War Museum and you know the the Tank Museum and. Uh, Bovington and and all those places. I mean, how is it having access to those? Are those places that you get to go to, and are they do they kind of tap into your inspiration when you visit places like that? Yeah, we're, we're very lucky. Cosford, RAF Cosford, that's somewhere I because they do the model show there. That's a that's a two in one event. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. The Imperial War Museum again. I went there when I was younger with my my grandparents. They had a big T thirty four just slap bang in the middle of the floor. It's like. That's awesome. Just, I think growing up in England and we have all this stuff, I did take it for granted for many years. I was like, oh, museums are boring. It's just old stuff. I think now more into, into history and modeling, it's like, wow, the opportunity we have to see one of a kind things and it's 10 minutes down the road, it's, it's, it's amazing. Bovington uh, is one place I've not been able to visit yet. One day, I, I've got to go there. John, I think we need to go with him. I will always go back. I, I've been there twice, once about 2007, and then I actually went on my honeymoon. So it's a, it's a special place. And speaking of London, I, I was really lucky. You know, my dad and I, we went on kind of a tour of military museums. So Fleet Art Era Museum at Yeovilton, Bovington, Cosford, Duxford. It's, it, it's, uh, I'm speechless because it's just quite an adventure over there. And I, I'm super jealous of the proximity uh, that you have toward, you know, at these, at these really cool places. Well, I, Ivan, for, for a younger modeler, who's just maybe starting into this hobby, there, there seem to be quite a lot of new people with the pandemic that have started in, give them some advice. I mean, you, you, you got back, you got into the hobby in 2015 and by 2016, you had an article published and, um, your work is really tremendous. So, you know, what, what advice would you give a young modeler who was just starting out, who wanted to improve and get better and, and maybe get published someday? Don't stress, which is pe- something people have to tell me all the time. I am a massive stress head. If something's not exactly right, I feel I've, I think I've ruined it, and that's it. I've butchered it, ruined, needs to go in the bin, start again. Um, it's why I've got so many models, didn't want to start them in case I ruin them. I'm a textbook overthinker. So that would be my advice, Sam. Just, it's just some plastic. Have some fun with it. See, see what you can do with it. And if you mess it up, strip the paint back or just start on something else. It's just plastic. It's not the end of the world. That's a tremendous perspective. I love that. That's, that's advice I would echo. I'm sure John would as well. It's just as tremendous. Yeah. You know, one of the pieces I want to pick up on there, Ivan, you mentioned just, you know, just do it essentially and learn and move to the next one. Do you see your style, at least I've seen in some photographs, the style of your modeling changing every build? Do you, do you try something new? Are, are you experimenting? Yes. My, uh, it's weird. I don't have a style mm-hmm. yet. 
that is still very much being developed. With the models behind me, it's very evident with each single build, they're all completely different. And that's because I've changed something in the step somewhere. So, for example, that little 148 Easy 8 I did within 10 days, mm-hmm. there was not a single clear coat put on that. And I'm usually someone who obsesses about clear coat and protecting the previous mm-hmm. layers. No clear coat on that. And that's, I think, one of my best pieces yet. So I'm, I'm, I'm learning with each step. But then on the next model, I didn't put any clear coat. And I was like, this is this needs to go in the bin or on a bonfire or some just go. <laughs> it's yeah, it's, it's tough. Um, it, I imagine it's easier for other people who see my work to notice change or notice a style. But as I'm say, putting my blood, sweat and tears into it, I, I'm not really looking at the bigger picture. I'm looking at each individual little area. Like I imagine it's, it's greater than the sum of its parts, but I, I look at all the parts. Mm-hmm. It's funny how that is, you know. I have a a really good friend who's a tremendous modeler. We're going to call him Juan, and he has this T34 that he's working on, and it is gorgeous. But he stared at it so much that he's convinced himself that the color is no good, and so you kind of got to call him up and talk him off of the ledge and say, "No, Juan, that's beautiful. Stop it." You know, I I think sometimes, uh, I don't know if you find this to be true, but sometimes is it better if you're hip deep into a project and you're just staring at it to maybe set it aside and then maybe come back to it later? Is that something you do? I do that a lot. And all I'm going to say is one's T34 is sublime. (laughs) 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 I I, I say that's my style. I love that. As soon as I saw it, I was like, that's amazing. That is what I want to do. But yeah, I, I suffer, and I think most people do, from you stirring so long at it, you find everything that's wrong with it rather than everything you've done right with it. Mm-hmm. So get out of the room, leave it for the night, work on something else, watch a film, do something, and then come back to it with a fresh set of eyes. It's like, ah, it's it's what was I worried about? Because mm-hmm. I've done that with every... I've probably binned more models than I've got in my display case, and I regret that now because it's like that, there was really nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. And I just got so annoyed because my Panzer Grey was slightly too blue. Mm-hmm. And that was such an easy fix. Mm-hmm. So a fresh set of eyes is always better. No, for sure. And I appreciate the kind comments, Scott. I'm, I'm still <laughs> still struggling with it, but it's getting there. Um, but go, going back to you, Ivan, you know, one of the projects that I liked a lot that you worked on was the classic Panzer II from Tamiya. Can you talk a little bit about maybe returning to a, a more simpler kit and what, what maybe joy it brought you? You know, as you were talking about that model, I was thinking about a completely different model. Oh, the, uh, the, the one I've done in uh, the North Africa with the chips. Yeah, yeah, it's right there um, behind you. Yep. Right? Yeah, yes, it is. I, sh- I should know that. It's in the room with me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that is, that was, that's fun. That's a fun mm-hmm. kit because it's so basic. Yeah. That is quite literally two hours work to assemble. Yeah, there are issues with it. Like mm-hmm. there's like blisters in the plastics of, there is some fouling when it comes to, uh, some mating surfaces, but I think to return to a kit that comes with figures for about £12 and you can have some fun with it, it's, it's, it's priceless, really. And I think I got more jo- uh, enjoyment out of that £12 build than I did out of a, a, a £60 Ryefield build because I could just do what I want with it. There was no worry. Yeah, that's, you know, it's, we're going to name drop again, but, you know, Spencer really talked about that on his legacy builds in our interview. He, he, it's, and I've certainly experienced as well. 
I just love simpler, older kits. I, I don't know. Maybe it's the frugal nature in me. I, I love the sense of accomplishment when you can take something that's like 40 years old, build it. And then someone asks, oh, is that the new kit? No, actually, that's the one that's older than me. So <laughs> I love what you've done with that. And I also love the other two scenes that you've created there, especially I, I'm going to probably get this wrong. It's not an Opal Blitz. It's a, um, oh gosh, is is it like a German copy of a Ford? I'm trying to think the one that you made it's, from Tanisha. It's pretty much an Opal Blitz. It's, okay. it's, it's unnamed for licensing reasons, but it's the oh, ICM okay. VS3000. Gotcha. Yeah. That I'm was cool. fun. That was really fun. Oh, yeah. I mean, that, you created the little scene, you have your figure, but the beer bottles in the back are awesome. Yeah, that was uh, my one of my first projects with a 3D printer. Okay. Which I hate, by the way. <laughs> yeah, that was... <laughs> it was a great scene to make, but I've noticed that was the third one in a row that I've done where there's a raised corner and then there's a sloped corner. It's like all my scenes have that same layout, so I need mm. to mix them up a bit. Because the Bergpanzer is just a mirror opposite. It's got a raised hill in the corner mm-hmm. and a slope in the other corner. So it's, mm-hmm. it's, I think it's just assembly what suits the eye, but it's something I need to change. Yeah, the, the, the BS3000 vignette was fun, but the kit was a challenge. Mm-hmm. It was one of ICM's older ones, and ICM plastic is extremely soft. Lots and lots of mold lines, very warped plastic, and I had to assemble the chassis like bar by bar. Mm-hmm. So that was all over the place. But once it was built, like with me, as soon as the armor's built, that's when the fun begins. Mm-hmm. I could try lots of techniques, lots of... Um, I think this was my first bit of work for ammo with the mm-hmm. oil brushes, doing the um, ambient occlusion technique. <laughs> I love that. One of my favorite techniques, I love it. It instantly t- uh, turns my model to life. It's, it makes it less a block and gives it shape, curves, and dimension. Mm-hmm. That was a labor of love because that was a project just for me. And that's where I do my best when it's something I really want to do and it's mine rather than for a publisher or a customer. It's, it's mine. It's for my shelf. I want to pick up on what you just said there, Ivan. question that TJ asked us on a, on a previous episode was what was our favorite model? And before I ask you it, I'll, I'll caveat, you know, favorite could be the one you've enjoyed the most, the one you've learned the most. What model says to Ivan, like, that's my favorite I've ever built and, and maybe why it is. There's, so I'd love to say it's an armor piece or a vignette, mm-hmm. but it's not. It's the 132nd Special Hobby Tempest. Okay. And that's my favorite because so many people said I would never be able to finish it. They said, the fit's too poor. You'll get bored halfway through. Bit too, it, you're not skilled enough to build that model. Mm-hmm. And I built it and it was published and it's, it's on my display case now. It's still one of my favorites. Not because the finish is the best or the build is the best, but because I did it when people said I couldn't. Yeah, that kid has a reputation of being a being a bear, so that's pretty awesome that you proved him wrong. It's a fire. It's certainly a fire. <laughs> Ivan's like, okay, hold my bear. <laughs> oh, yeah. Was, as soon as he said that, I was like, all right, I'm going to, I'm not building it for me now. I'm building it just to prove you wrong. And that gave me more pleasure than anything. No, that that's a, that's a great example. So maybe, you know, instead of looking back now at your favorite build, what do you maybe hope to learn or accomplish in a future project? What What do you want to bolster in your kind of toolbox or technique set? Hmm, that's that's a tough one. There's a, there's a lot I'd love to be able to do, and say turning to night shift isn't possible. <laughs> I'd, it's it's not so much a skill. I'd like to actually just do things without overthinking about them. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't everyone? But um, when I look at a lot of my models, paint finish. 
mm-hmm. after so many layers, and especially when you're taking photo- like proper pictures with the, the photo booth and mm-hmm. the camera, it's like, ooh, that looks like sandpaper. So work on paint finishing, make sure the surface is nice. That's that's always something that I, I criticize myself for the most. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to mention like rescribing and re revitting because that's an aircraft thing. And I've, I think I've established now that armor is where I want to be at. And yeah, there's just, there's a lot of techniques I, I want to be able to do perfectly, but I, I just don't think that's ever going to happen because you're always going to be learning new things, new, mm-hmm. new products, new ways of doing things. It's like, I thought I knew quite a bit about some stuff and then next week it's like ah i know nothing oh yeah yeah because night shift drops a video or uh <laughs> exactly <laughs> or you know you see you know an eastern european that you've never met before post a fantastic model on facebook that kind of blows your mind and changes the way you look at things so you know with that ivan where where can people find your work outside of uh, the magazine it's hard really because um i i do have a facebook page I very rarely post on it because I forget. Most of my work is actually just on my personal Facebook page, just my name. If you want to add me, feel free. That's completely up to you. But yeah, it's it's mainly just goes on Facebook. I try now and again to put it on my Instagram. Uh, again, I, I forget about that. I'm very, very unreliable when it comes to remembering to post to social media. Mm-hmm. Unless it's a finished piece or nearly finished, then it goes on my personal Facebook page. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's quite hard to find my work. It's probably why I'm probably going to be the most unknown name on this podcast oh no that's my job (laughs) (laughs) you know you mentioned ivan sort of chasing that perfect build and that's never going to happen but i think the quest for the perfect build is more of a journey really rather than a destination where do you see yourself in two or three years you know obviously it seems like armor is where your heart is but where do you see yourself growing there's um See, I, I'd love to build tanks with interiors in workshops or out in muddy fields and scenes that tell stories. That's more important to me than something that just looks cool. It's what's going on, when's it set, what's happening, stuff like that. And the mood. There's there's a diorama that went round. Uh, I don't know if it was last year or the year before, and it was two. It was a, it was a train yard, two trains, an injured soldier caught in the middle. That for me is one of the best dioramas I've ever seen. And that's because of the story being told. Pete Usher, uh, I believe. That's that's exactly who it is. I yep. couldn't think of the name. Yes. Yep. It's without, yeah, that's without a doubt one of the best dioramas I've seen ever because of the story. If if you could tell a good story with the diorama of Inya, I think that is actually more important than, say, the the skills that went into the modeling. Or say, the, the figures might not be the, the best painted in the world, but there's a story. And I connect with that more than the artist's brush skill. That's more important to me. That's, that's incredible um, introspection, especially from somebody who's a little younger in the hobby. I'd love to be able to build vignettes and dioramas just all the time. And I, I don't want to sound all big-headed or snobbish or whatever, but I, I'd just love once to, say, win a gold or something at Scale Model World, some sort of validation for my effort and work. And I don't want to say I'm doing this just so I can get medals or trophies, but it'd just be proof that what i'm doing is right if that makes sense well i can tell you right now what you're doing is right you know i certainly admire your work and you know w- we had an agreement that we've um you know put put to the side but i i still uh ivan i i do want to build a model and i hope you build one as well and we could swap them 
um, as a little collaboration. I'd, I'd love to have one of your pieces. Oh, absolutely. I find inspiration in your work. I, I love the way you're working with colors and modulation and you're really pushing it in that regard from an artistic style standpoint. So I, I don't think you, from my perspective, have to prove anything to anyone. You know, I like, that's why I ask when, you know, where can people find your work? Because I do find it inspiring. I do find it, you know, I, I really learn from it as well, especially the EZA Sherman. All of draft, I've told Scott lately that I've struggled with green, um, but I can point to your EZA Sherman as a way to really bring all of drab from a drabby finish to a more, um, you know, stylized. So it, I'm getting, what am I getting at is you don't have to prove anything to anyone, certainly uh, not the two folks on the call right now with you. And <laughs> and also it goes to show that you've, you've had your work on the cover of a magazine as well. So not only, you know, I appreciate it, but certainly a lot of others so I think you have a lot to be proud of and medals are cool. But, um, at the end of the day, I, I really do think your, your stuff is great. And I look forward to every new piece you're putting out. Well, uh, <laughs> unquestionably agreed. Thank you. That's, that's quite humbling. I, I don't take compliments. Well, <laughs> uh, for, for those of you listening at home, Ivan is going a shade of red. Um, <laughs> you, you can't see it right now, but we're enjoying that. So, yeah. Yeah, no, you, you, but you do bring up a good point. I think one thing in the hobby is it's sometimes hard to find validation. I, that's why I love Facebook because I can interact with people and, and you know, validate their, and not that this sounds terrible, I guess, validating someone's work, but, you know, encourage them showing that people do look at it, do find inspiration from it and, and do enjoy it. It's the most important thing at the end of the day. Damn, we got deep here real quick. <laughs> God damn. Damn. <laughs> Well, Ivan, we really, really appreciate um, coming onto the show. It's really, really late. We're going to let you uh, get off and uh, have a nap or whatever you're doing. Um, so thank you so much for joining us. No, thank you. It's, uh, it's been a pleasure. And don't worry about the time. I'm going to be up for another four hours yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, everybody out there, um, Ivan Jensen-Taylor, he's got a personal page on Facebook. He also has an Instagram page, so you can check out his work there. Ivan, again, thank you so much, and uh, we will definitely be having you back on the posse uh, very, very soon. A pleasure. Thank you very, very much for having me. Thanks so much, Ivan. Well, that was a great interview with Ivan. Doug, what does our listener feedback look like this week? Well, it looks like this. All right. To start off, we want to thank everyone who has participated with your excellent posts and pictures of your best and favorite builds in response to TJ's question on episode 21. There were some fantastic models posted by the posse. Yeah, I just I just want to say that um, that was really cool. That level of, search for the word here, community interaction. Engagement, that's a uh, yeah. Yeah, it, the engagement with with the listeners and the community we built—that's what this is all about. And um, I, I was—I know me personally—I was every time I got on Facebook, there was a new post, someone sharing their builds, and it was just cool because not only did we get to see some really, really good uh, models by some very talented modelers, it was neat just to kind of see what you know how everyone views their own work and what they what they like. You know, a lot of the, a lot of the people we saw are very prolific modelers so that was that was neat i really appreciated that so th thank you everyone yeah and, and feel free to visit our facebook page to uh go check those out because there are a bunch and they are good 
Rick Cooper says that yeehaw just keeps getting better and better. I keep thinking every episode has the best interview you've done to date. Then you go out and top it with the next one. I think the Wilder interview was among the very best. And the very least, it was the most humorous for sure. We really had a blast recording that one. That was a lot of fun. Anyway, keep up the good work and looking forward to meeting everyone in Vegas. I assume we're having a movie night with Airplane on the docket, right? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I, definitely do I, that. I love that movie. One of my all-time favorites. Definitely. Uh, Zach Pease says, hello to the posse. You guys are doing great things to promote the hobby and help build and maybe rebuild our modeling community in the wake of COVID. I've been loving the pod and wanted to share my IPMS Club's upcoming event here in Central Connecticut. It's just a swap meet and build day, but with so few spring modeling events up to now, it might be a fun gathering for those in Southern New England and Eastern New York to come check out and buy or sell or just hang out and talk modeling. We are a diverse group of modelers focusing in aircraft, armor, and sci-fi. I thought I might send this to you guys and hope you could share it on your Facebook page and it will be there too. Thanks for working to build a positive and inclusive modeling community. Ralph Koziarski, aka Scale Modeling Haven says, I wanted to thank you for the plug on my Facebook blog, Scale Modeling Haven, and as a red, relative nobody in the modeling world, I was floored to hear my work being mentioned. Thanks so very much for the kind words. It really meant a lot to me, especially coming from crackerjack modelers such as yourself. I love your podcast, and I love that there is a community coalescing around it. You guys may be at the leading edge of a movement. It's a good time to be a modeler, and I'm really glad I found you. All the very best. Now, I'm trying to understand what crackerjack means in this context. <laughs> I think it's like, really attractively packaged and there's a surprise inside there's a secret toy surprise inside oh, that's right yeah huh. so I, I think i think i think he's talking mostly about jb here oh no not me cracker jack is just it means good when something's cracker jack that that's a good it's a good thing all good things yeah okay i was gonna go to a baseball game or something but okay uh robert perlman wrote hey guys great interview with adam wilder plus one for more books from him YouTube and Instagram is great, but there is something about a well-laid-out and written book that lets you go in-depth on a given subject. Do you have any idea if there's any chance of re-releasing Adam's armor? It's quite difficult to find in Canada. So I think I mentioned it in the podcast. You can get those books on the AFE Modeler app, like for your iPad or mm -hmm. probably Android, if I had to guess. I have an iPad, so I have it on that they are, as far as I know, out of print in the physical edition. But I like digital books anyways for that kind of stuff because uh, you can zoom in on the pictures and stuff. But yes, you can find them. They're worth every every penny. I love them. I looked them up on, on eBay and a physical copy in the States is going for about 75 bucks right now. I, I'm waving this in the front of the camera to our listeners. I have my copy of number two next to my bench because I'm following it right now for my T-34. It's... Uh, like we've all mentioned, it's probably one of the best, uh, one of the best modeling books out there. Put it up there right next to, you know, tank art, different style, different approach to modeling. And I certainly appreciate it. So as TJ mentioned, if it's the digital, anything that's out there, it's, it's well worth it. Yeah. It's, it's awesome. As, as a little, uh, a little aside, learning how to paint bare mild steel. I learned from that book because it's, it's deceptively difficult to paint a convincing uh, mild steel. Yeah, because um, people typically want to paint it like metallic and if someone that works with steel. It's not it does not look like that. And right. to make it look like what you see in real life is really hard. And of course, Adam is amazing at it. So, yeah, 
plus plus like a million for that book. So good. Yeah. So just to continue on the Adam Wilder train of thought, I was actually over on Anthony Modeler's website today, and you can find some of his older modeling articles. So if you simply go to anthemodeler.com and then search Adam Wilder, what it'll do is pull up all of the issues that he was a part of. And then what's really nice is it also lists the individual articles that he has written. So you can go pull like the IS4 article and it's one pound and you can get a PDF sent to you. There's also, let's see, there's the Gorilla he mentioned, which is the metallic, half metallic, half red primer. And he's got some of his earliest builds on there too. So I would recommend if you're a fan of Adam and you want to see his work in, in some of the great articles that he's written through the years, you can hop on over to AFE Modeler. I'll even post a link on our website when this drops and you can pick them up for one pound, which is a little less than two bucks US, uh, US American dollars. So, All right. Rob Booth messaged us and he really enjoyed the Adam Wilder interview as well and wanted to thank us for uh, the plug for John Lennon himself uh, and their platform with regards to campaigning for IPMS, U.S. President, Second VP, and Secretary. We're excited for the opportunity to improve the modeling experience for all IPMS members and others in the hobby. Thanks again and look forward to seeing all of you in Vegas. John Bryan from the U.K. is back and he says, Just a note to add to the chorus of other listener feedback that you've had lauding the new interview segments with, quote, ordinary modelers. I love hearing about how other people entered and practiced the hobby and look forward to you hopefully doing many more. Whilst I love all the modeling podcasts, I do particularly appreciate the breadth that you guys offer. It's also been great to hear the interviews with more established modeling personalities like Spencer Pollard, Brett Green, and Adam Wilder. I don't know what your plans are, but I'd love to hear similar interviews with two people in particular. Marcus Nichols has been a fixture of the modeling publishing world for, I guess, around 30 years, and yet I've not seen him interviewed much. It would be great to get his perspective on the hobby and learn a little more about his background. Also, John Chung is, in my estimation, possibly the best aircraft modeler whose work I've seen over the years. Not only that, but in contrast to my earlier messages about the fragmented world of aircraft modeling versus the apparently more united world of armor modeling, John appears to be a universally recognized modeling genius. It would be great if you could get him on. Anyway, keep up the good work and all the best. Those are those are really great suggestions, John. It's, it's awesome to hear from you again. Um, we've actually uh, tried with Marcus. We'll keep trying. He's... Uh, as you said, he's a great modeler and has a lot of experience with publications. So we'll keep doing that. And I think we've been trying with uh, John as well. So we'll see what we can do for you. Yeah. Uh, just spoiler alert. I, I have talked to John a lot. You know, he's willing to come on and we'd love to talk to him. So we definitely got to learn more about his, uh, you know, space shuttle that he's built right now. So thanks so much for the comments, John, and, and we'll be sure to get him on shortly. Craig Lowther says, another great episode. The Modelers Minute is a great addition to the podcast. I like the positivity and the enthusiasm of this community that you have built up and that you have for each other. It really helps keep the mojo going. I promise once I have finished my Raptors army, I have just a few more models to go. I'll be hitting my plane stash and put into practice some of the tips and techniques that I've learned from this group. Keep knocking it out of the park, guys. Yeah, thanks a lot, Craig. Yeah, keep those uh, keep those raptors coming, Craig. I love them. 
Okay, up next, we have Bruce David from Down Under. Another great show, Triple P. To fill in the blanks from the interview with Ray Davis, model shows here in Australia are increasingly welcoming Gundam modelers. Awesome. Uh, Reflecting the growing uh, popularity of the genre and people running the shows here are also seeing it as a way to introducing young modelers to the hobby. That's awesome news, Bruce, and best of luck to all the shows in Australia as things open up. And finally, Kevin Kelly says, stop making me buy more models. (laughs) No, I will not do that. Because if I do it, everyone has to do it. Yeah, I've made several large <laughs> purchases just within the last two weeks. So keep spending that money. You can't take it with you. So That's right. you, you might as well spend it. I, so. I want to say something here about when, when people talk about our uh, Modelers Minute and these ordinary modelers. I don't I don't look at any of the, model, the people we interview as ordinary. They're just maybe relatively unknown, but... I, I think if you're building a model and you're putting paint on it and you're and you're striving to improve, there's nothing ordinary about you. So uh, we we'd love to talk to anybody that's willing to talk to us. Not only that, what great personalities! I mean, you, when you look at some of the some of the people that we've talked to, um, the interview we had, uh, you know, with Ivan Stanley and, and a couple of other ones that we got uh, in the pipe that you guys are going to hear. You know, as yeah, as the episodes go, we, we've got a couple stored up. So. Yeah, it's been it's been awesome. A lot of fun. Yeah, I think maybe if if anything I've noticed a common theme from all of them is this hobby really brings joy to them. Um and it, and it's contagious. I really enjoy talking to these people. I, I love talking to anybody about the hobby, especially someone that's as passionate as as the as the individuals that we've spoken to. So, it's been certainly a blast. We'd love to hear from more. Um there's always an open seat here at the Posse for any modeler of any kind, and we'd love to hear from you. Yeah, John, that's exactly right. As a couple of people mentioned in their feedback, uh, this is a community and we we really want to help expose people, whether it's to new social media content or let people hear the voices of some of the other modelers out there in the posse. So uh, we definitely plan on continuing to bring those segments uh, to you. All right. TJ, what's new for our social media shout outs? All right. We got a bunch of good stuff for our social media shout outs uh, this week. Uh, first of all, I want to let everyone know or remind everyone that we are on Instagram and we are on Twitter. And on Instagram, you can find us at Plastic Posse Podcast. And on Twitter, you can find us at Posse Podcast. So if you're on those platforms, tag us in photos, tag us in posts. Just we're always happy to interact with everyone and we like seeing everyone's work. So yeah, please, please share what you got with us. All right. So I'm going to start with YouTube. I'm going with someone that doesn't need a whole lot of propping up. If you're involved in miniature painting, especially Warhammer, Richard Gray choosing YouTube because he has a relatively new YouTube channel. I think he's maybe got six, seven videos on it. He is a multiple Slayer Sword winning miniature painter. And I think we've mentioned this before, but it, at Games Workshop painting competitions, the Slayer Sword, which is an actual sword that you win as a trophy, is what the best in show wins. And it's extremely difficult to win, obviously, because it's the best. You, that is, He's one of the best of the best. Um, it's just an insanely talented artist. And he has been doing videos with the whole process of painting. Instead of just a short 10-minute video with one thing, no, he'll sit down and he'll show you how to paint You know, a skeleton. Now, you won't see every single brush stroke. You'll see enough of you know painting this little skeleton figure to a standard that is frankly insane that he makes it seem like, Oh, anyone can do it. And, and of course I believe most anyone can do it. It's just knowing what to do. And he shares all that information with you. 
Um, he's on other social media too. I mean, he's got like fifty four thousand followers on Instagram or whatever. I mean, he's he's a well known name in miniature painting. But uh, if you want to watch a true master at work, I would highly just look for Richard Gray. Just go to YouTube and search Richard Gray. He doesn't have a special channel name. It's just him. And yeah, you can sit down. I mean, his some of his videos are an hour plus, and it's just pure zen watching him work. Yeah, I'm shocked he only has 6,000 subscribers. I think, he, I mean, I want to say he just started making videos like within the last maybe six months. So it, he hasn't been around long, but I'm also surprised just given his name recognition that he doesn't have more already. I'm sure he will. He'll get there. If he keeps making videos, which I hope he does, he'll be up there with, with some of the, the most popular. Yeah, his ultramarine is pretty sweet. It's It's crazy. I'm always impressed with war, uh, you know, war gaming miniature painters, just next level. All right. And now we're going to jump over to Facebook and we're going to give a shout out to our buddy Ian and his uh, painting page on Facebook called iBones Models. So Ian. it's I B O N E Z Models. Ian is a good friend of the podcast and he is a very talented modeler. He, right now he's working on one of the T26 some T28 yep T28 some weird esoteric Russian thing but it's in 70 second scale so it like fits in the palm of your hand and frankly he's knocking it out of the park he was involved in I think he was involved in our T34 group build wasn't he yeah he was I think he was one of the first ones done it was a fantastic model Uh, he did a great job Uh, and if you are in scale models critique group you'll see him over there he's one of the moderators he's on the moderation team yeah so i mean check out his, his facebook page and he's just kind of getting it started now but uh yeah give him a like check out what he's doing yeah he has a new logo for his page it's pretty sharp and uh one of my favorite models uh, that he's done is he did a char that is a french char b1 that is just really really stunning i believe he won some awards with it so that's uh, definitely worth uh, checking the page out to see that as well. All right. So for Instagram, we'd like to plug Kyungho Kim One. So if you go to, uh, we'll post a link to it. If you go to his Instagram page, you'll be able to see some top sci-fi and armor builds. And specifically, he's got a great Sherman on there, two-tone, you know, the OD in black. So based on Operation Cobra. And then he's also got a really nice Millennium Falcon. So I am definitely following him right now because this is a TJ plug. Oh, he also built Tiger 131. Yeah, he's got some really quality stuff. And he's got good pictures of food, so I'm, I'm all in. Yeah, I really liked his uh, his uh, Falcon build. He did it, uh, I think it was the one, yeah, it was the one one forty fourth scale. I think it was the Bondi one. And it's like taking off, I, I want to say it's the scene from The Force Awakens when it has like the tarps hanging off the back. He molded the tarps and it's like launching off from the desert. The tarps are like flying back. It was pretty cool. And it was painted really well too. So it was neat little dynamic you know, scene with good painting. And yeah, I really like that Sherman. I, I, I'm always on the lookout for a good Sherman and I like camouflage Sherman. So I caught that and just checked out the rest of his stuff and gave him a follow. Yeah, he's got nice figures too. All around really good modeler. Okay, so today's wild card for social media shout out. This is my recommendation. I've been seeing it pop up a lot on Facebook lately and some, you know, some other members have as well. It's, it's called Resin Scales. It's a smaller Facebook page just created by a small group of, I believe it's a manufacturer out of the Singapore area. And what they've been producing is 3D printed 135th scale worlds of tanks vehicles. So these are all like pseudo hypothetical. They have an object 279E, which is kind of this four track monster looking 
Russian vehicle. They have an AMX 50. And if you're familiar with the game, you can find some of those iconic vehicles that aren't molded uh, in plastic in this 3D printed form. I've actually reached out to them asking a few questions. I'm considering one of their builds. So for reference, for a 135th scale full 3D printed tank, uh, right now they're 160 bucks and they're free shipping. So that might seem a lot, but I'm interested to learn more, certainly because I don't think we'll ever see some of them in plastic. Yeah, it's funny when we uh, when I opened up the episode outline, I didn't fill in the the wild card in here, and I saw that, and I told John before we started recording, I was like, you know what? I also found their Facebook page, and I was like, man, I should put that as the wild card, and I just didn't get around to it. So that was pretty funny, but yeah, they're they're, they're it's really cool stuff. Yeah, a little rich for my blood, maybe, but who knows? I mean, I also I just spent that that amount of money on a resin model from industrial mechanica so i guess it's not really too rich for my blood i guess it depends on how good of a mood i'm in yeah that's right if your give it is broken purchase (laughs) 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 so you know that's what we have for social media shout outs i'll be sure to add those links on our facebook page one of the segments that we're going to dive into next is kind of a, a topic that we just threw together and it's all around photos specifically scale model photography. This topic has been creeping up more and more as of late and, you know, coupled with a lot of YouTubers who have posted videos about how to take photographs of your model, specifically Martin Kovac's recent one on Night Shift is a fantastic example. But I I think it's a topic that's gotten a lot of attention. I've certainly gotten questions about it. I love talking about it. You know, the better photographer you are, the better modeler you can become in my mind. Um, And with that, I'd love to just go around the room, maybe talk about your approach to scale model photography, what tips and tricks that you would recommend for people just getting into this. I think a lot of the questions around scale model photography spawn from people wanting to get their work published or wanting to show their work off in, in a better way. The, the best way to grow and gain you know, through critique and through comments on Facebook and social media in general is to post your work with, with great photographs so people can really see it. You know, The hardest thing to give constructive feedback on or feedback in general is poor photography. And, and it's, you know, again, no fault to the modeler. We all have our different circumstances at home, but, you know, we'd love to cover this topic and, and help some people out who are looking to up their photo game. With that, you know, maybe I'll kick it over to TJ, who's gotten a lot of attention lately on his Crusader build and some of the excellent photographs that he's been taking. Maybe if you could share some tips, tricks, where you've learned things and, and how do you want to, you know, grow in scale model photography? Well, first of all, thank you, John, for that. I appreciate that. Yeah, so I don't know. It's 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 weird. Um, I'll be perfectly honest. Like, I bullshitted my way into taking good photos, which I'm sure resonates with a lot of people in scale modeling. I'm not a trained artist. I didn't go to art school. I've never taken a photography class ever in my life. I have a DSLR that I bought years ago for my wife uh, with the intention that we would use it for trips or whatever, and it just never really – we never really did because – they invented iPhones and it's just way easier to carry around an iPhone. Than it is to carry around an expensive extra piece of gear that you could lose or drop or get stolen. Um, so it was just kind of sitting around collecting dust. And one day I decided, Oh, you know, I should use this to take some pictures of my, my models. I literally Googled how to take good pictures or something like that of like models. And I found, you know, a couple websites and I more or less followed what they said. And my photos were okay. And as I've gone through, you know, the years I've kind of fine tuned it. I've upgraded my lighting. Um, I started with a little like photo tent that a lot of people probably are familiar with. You can get them on Amazon for like 30 bucks. And now I have like big soft boxes that I use. I take up a lot of room, which, you know, that's, you don't need those big lights. 
any kind of good lighting, bright lighting, small LED lights are fine. I would like to upgrade to those, but what I have works and I have the space for it. So I, I just don't. Yeah, it, I don't know. Well, I think when Brett was on here, uh, TJ, to build on the point you were making about lighting, I think whether you're using an iPhone or an Android phone or you're using a nice camera, I think the most important element is to get your subject well lit, not overlit, not underlit, but well lit. Well, yeah, you want you want good lighting. I I, I like to slightly underexpose my photos. I want to say Trevarian YouTube channel had a, a they he recently did a video about it too, and he also mentioned that because I use Lightroom to edit, which is recent for me. I was using some freeware for a long time, but I decided to buck up and I made the switch to Lightroom, and you got to pay for it, which sucks, but it's so much easier to for me to use. It's faster. I don't have to do anything. I can work with the raw file um, from the camera, which I appreciate. And so I will slightly underexpose because from what I understand, it's easier for the computer to overexpose than it is to take light away from your photo. So that's what I've been doing. I think my photographs are pretty good. I'm sure they could be better. Everything can always be better. But yeah, I am I really enjoy it now. I used to kind of not like it, but now I, I leave my photo area set up I have leave my tripod there and I just move back and forth. I wish I wish I had it next to where I work, but where even though I have the space for it down here, I don't I'm not really laid out for it. So I have to get up, unfortunately, and and walk around a wall and then take some pictures. Um I would I'd like to add something as someone that doesn't take good pictures yet, I'm working on it. And I just have the the phone at this point. On top of the lighting, also look at what your background is. I see a lot of guys sharing what might be really nice models and they're lost in the clutter behind the model. That's your entire model bench behind the model. And it's, there's paints and there's, there's tools and, and, and it all gets kind of lost in that, in that clutter. So a, a solid color background goes a long, long way to helping bring out the details on your model and not getting lost in the confusion. And I also want to add, I'm sorry for TJ's use of bullshit in the, in this, uh, what he said. So, you know, we, we would like to apologize. The posse is sorry for that. That's, that's my, my thought is, is look at your backgrounds. Don't, don't lose it in, in a mess. Yeah. I mean, as easy as just a white sheet of paper. I mean, that's literally all you need. Eight and a half, yeah, eight and a half by 11. If you have an 11 by 17, that's even better. And and the the best part is almost every camera on a cell phone nowadays is fantastic, right? They're so good. Um, they're not perfect, obviously, and and obviously, you know, the camera will make sacrifices. But you can download Adobe Lightroom for free on your phone, and you can use all the basic tools you need to like adjust exposure and color and all that stuff. You don't need all the all the fancy tools, and it's all for free. And that's even easier because then boom, it's right there on your phone. And especially if you're just going to share it to social media, it's so easy. Yeah. Building off of that and using your phone, Scott, you turned me on to an app. Do you want to talk about that you've been using with your smartphone that I, I think it, it ups the, you know, gives you more control during that photography process? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it certainly doesn't have the power of Lightroom, but it's a free app and you can get it on, I think, any kind of smartphone. But I use an iPhone 11. The app is called ProCam. And uh, it gives you, it's really intuitive. It, it, it isn't hard to learn. It'll take you, you know, 10 minutes to figure out how to, how to use everything on it. And I've taken some photos that, you know, I've sent to John and he's been surprised as, oh, wow, what camera, 
camera are you using? And I'm like, oh, just using my phone. So you can use your phone to take pretty decent pictures. Now, recently, I picked up a, a Nikon DSLR, and to kind of what TJ was talking about, I picked up some new photography LED lights, and so I'm kind of tweaking on my setup right now to try and improve what I have. I have a 50 millimeter fixed length lens to try and get some great shots, so I'm working on that right now, but you don't need all of that. You can just use your, use your phone and a simple free app on your phone and get some good work that way. Also, there's a lot on Amazon for a few bucks. You can get all kinds of little stands or tripods or something to hold your iPhone on as you're doing your work so that you can get good pictures and that'll help eliminate blur for you. And you can do it that way if you, if you choose, or you can just, you know, use your phone freehand either way. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And maybe something to highlight to our listeners. I think of scale modeling photography almost as unique as scale modeling. Every modeler is going to have a different approach to it. Every modeler is going to have different results. There's no perfect formula. I think what we've just shown is that everyone kind of has their unique mix of lighting, camera, post-processing that makes their photos unique to them. You know, you can look at an Adam Wilder photo and immediately tell it's his work, not only from the work, but the photo that he's taken. And the same with Martin as well. And Martin tells you about that in his YouTube video. The same with Rinaldi. And he talked about it in the interview before where he is trying to set up that environment as, as you would see it if you were next to it and making sure the colors are correct. Maybe I'm just trying to steal a little bit from everybody. Uh, my setup has certainly evolved over the years. I started actually my first photo booth I made out of foam core and then took shop lights and shot them up at the top of it. So it would bounce the light back down on top of the model. And I remember using a DSLR, having no clue what I was doing. And I posted a picture of a 48 scale 251 half track on Facebook. And I remember I was like, oh yeah, this photo looks great. I'm thinking. And then Mig Jimenez, no, no one else except him, reaches out and says, hey, you know, this looks good, but check your white balance. I think you're using tungsten lights and it's got a red hue. And, I, and it just like blew my mind. I'm like, first off, thank you for the compliment, Mig. Um, but second, it's like, I didn't even know that was a thing. And now I'm like super critical of all the photographs I'm taking. I really struggle sometimes even still about lighting. My photo setup is in a separate room right up, right behind the wall at my desk. And I, and I think maybe for our listeners, that's, that's maybe my best recommendation, as TJ's mentioned and Scott as well, is have that dedicated area. That way you don't have to worry about tearing your bench down, putting up photography equipment and taking those photos, especially during progress builds, but try to find a dedicated area. We can certainly post our setups online and maybe this is a good thing as well for our listeners. You know, Maybe they can post a photograph that they've taken that they're proud of and then share your setup. I'd love to know what lights you're using, what photo booth, if you are using a photo booth. For instance, I, I transitioned from a photo booth and now I just have these large light tents that have diffusers on them. But I'd love to see your photos, your photo setup, any post-processing that you do, because I adjust the levels, contrast, and now I've started to do sharpness as well in Photoshop. I don't change the overall you know, effect of the picture, but I do like to clean it up a little bit, especially make that white background a little bit whiter. And then lastly, in addition to your post-processing, what kind of camera are you using? Uh, what lens are you using? And then more importantly, what are your settings? Because I think that's really telling for me. I'm at like six seconds shutter speed, high f-stop, and then I go from either a two, and now I've started to do a 10-second delay because I feel the vibrations, even after two seconds, might still be there. So this is a lot, but you know, feel free to share your setup, what you've found that works for you, and any feedback you'd want to provide. It's awesome. Yeah, look forward to that. So with JB talking about his camera settings, if, if anyone's curious, um, I'll share mine. So I shoot at, well, let me 
just pulled up my camera right now. I shoot at f20 with uh, my shutter speed set to one over three. I think that's a third of a second. Third of a second, yeah. Okay. You see, I'm not a photographer. Obviously, all manual. I do. I have a white balance card, so I, I have that set. Uh, ISO 100, super important, and uh, I have a remote, so I don't have to use a timer. It's a little cheap thing. It's a little wire, wireless remote. I actually bought it because I wanted to take star trails, and then I found out that I can't actually hold open the shutter with uh, this camera. I have a Nikon D3100. It's pretty old, and I shoot with a 50 millimeter 1.8 lens that I think I got. I, it's like 150 bucks. It was, it was pretty cheap. Best best money spent on the camera by far. Yeah, and just to pick up off that, some listeners have reached out to myself and others and talked about, oh, what's your camera setup? If you have a DSLR with a default lens, you can get started with that. Um, as TJ just mentioned, one of my first cameras for scale modeling is my first DSLR, bare bones, Sony Alpha, default lens with it that I think it was like 35 to 100. And I was able to play with the settings and get some really good photography you know, really good photographs that were much better than the point and shoot at the time. So if you have a DSLR, you have a basic lens, you can start there. Feel free to reach out if you have any questions. We're happy to help. We're by no means professionals. I copy Rinaldi. So I'm just trying to do what he does. Um, I just, I don't, I don't really copy anybody. I don't know that much about it, but I just, you know, I've taken pictures out in the world, you know, I'm a Malcolm and James don't want to hear this, but I've taken pictures of trains before. And so have some experience, you know, doing that and some wildlife stuff like that. So what what do they call those people again? Train spotters. Anoraks. Anoraks. Oh, anoraks. Yes, yes, the technical <laughs> term. I don't I don't think I qualify for full anorak because I don't write things down in a book. <laughs> um, but yeah, I've I've taken pictures of trains before. So all right. Well that was a great segment. Thanks guys. I appreciate the input and and as mentioned, listeners, please chime in, share your settings, your setup, and your photos. Well, now it's time for this episode's main interview segment. Scott and TJ recently had the opportunity to speak with UK modeler, editor, and author Chris Meddings, owner of Inside the Armor Publications. I'm certainly a little jealous of this, so sit back, grab your favorite drink, and enjoy. Cheers. All right, welcome into another Plastic Posse interview. Today, TJ and I are joined by Chris Meddings from the UK. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Chris is a professional modeler. He's an editor, a writer, a publisher, and I think he's a modeler that doesn't know what his favorite genre is. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Chris, uh, you know, inside the Armor Publications, uh, I see you guys have actually just released a naval kit. You do a lot of ship books. I mean, tell us a little bit first about yourself and then also about uh, Inside the Armor. Well, I don't know what, what to tell you about myself. If I start with the business, that started about uh, 12 years ago. I was working as a headhunter in recruitment and the financial crash happened. I lost two jobs in one year. I thought, well, what can I do with myself? And about the same time, I started getting back into model making. I joined the website and I was building models on the forum with everyone else. And I got really into Churchill's and I decided I wanted to build every Churchill that landed on the Dieppe beach. And I thought if I'm going to do that, I want interiors. 
So I'll make an interior, I'll master it, get someone to cast them for me because it's like 40 Churchills or something or 20 Churchills or something that landed. I can't recall now. And then someone said, oh, if you did that, I'd buy it. So I thought, cool, all right, I'll start a little business. And then, of course, the people that said they buy it didn't buy it. But I've come to learn that always happens. You should make a Goulash Cannon Mark V, I'll buy it. And they never buy it. So I, I did that and that worked okay. And I went on and did a few more interiors and resin and what have you. And um, a couple of years later, people kept asking me questions about Churchill's. And to be honest, I got sick of answering them. So I thought, I'll put it all in a book. And I can, I can when they ask, I can say, buy the book. So I made a book. It sold. And um, I soon realized it was a much better business than resin. Because with resin, it's a low volume, high, uh, low turnover business. So when you cast something, uh, you get maybe 50 copies off it. And then as soon as you do, you need to do a new mold. So there's no economy of scale to it as you know you might sell 100 kits but you'll make as much on the 100th one you sold as you did on the first one so and but books the more you print the cheaper it gets so if you print 100 books it's going to cost you maybe i'll use dollars maybe it's going to cost you 15 dollars to print a book if you print a thousand books it's going to cost you five dollars plus there's a fixed weight a fixed size you know how much it's going to cost shipping and everything else as a business it's a much better business so I stopped doing resin and started doing books. And then I started getting friends involved and helping me write the books. And that's kind of where it started. And that's where it is now, I guess. I'm glad you brought up the Churchills because um, I was looking kind of through your website and that modeling Churchills uh, book one looks like a really interesting text. I guess uh, maybe let's start off. Where can people find your books at? And then let's talk about that book a little bit, if you don't mind. Well, I'm really lucky. There's a couple of great distributors I work with. In the UK, I work with Bookworld Wholesale. In the US, Stevens International generally buy the books. Uh, in Japan also through Hobby Link Japan and a few other places in the Far East as well. And because of them, you can buy them almost anywhere locally. So whatever country you're in, you can get a copy locally, which when you consider it costs me anywhere between 15 and $30 or even $40 to ship a book, why pay that when you can just buy it locally? So in the US, for instance, you can get it from M&M Models in Chicago. You can get it from uh, Stevens. You can get it from Last Cavalry, all kinds of places like that. Excellent. Yeah, I li- I'm a fan of Churchill's, and I know, TJ, you are as well. It's true. <clears throat> the rumors Since, are true. Uh, AFE Club bought the new kits out. It's just phenomenal to model that. It's great. And with the new Mark Seven as well. When I first started modeling it, the book that was available was Mark Bannerman's uh, Modeling Churchill Tanks or something like that. And he had to convert, or he and the other authors, had to convert the old Tamiya Mark Seven into all the different marks, and we're lucky now. Apart from the Mark One and the Mark Two, you pretty much got everything you need right in the box. I also noticed that you had a kid. I was listening to On the Bench uh, yesterday, oh, yeah. and they were talking about your new naval kit that you just came out with. So tell us a little bit about that. I don't really do kits anymore. What I do is I make something that I want to build, and then to recover some of the cost of developing it, I sell some basically. So they're always very limited edition, maximum. I ever make is 100 of anything, sometimes only 50. But I'm obsessed with late 19th century, early 20th century ships, the pre-Dreadnought era. And I love the little French destroyers, largely because a lot of them have um, like a floating deck on the back. So there's a, a wooden deck with sl- slats in it that's suspended above the the main uh, well back iron, uh, metal deck, steel deck. And I just love that look for some reason. So um, I've made one before. A while ago, I made the Archibus class, and then I thought I'd do the Claymore class this time. Also, for people that it's quite a small ship, it's only 16 centimeters long. So, if you just want to dip your toe in a little bit of a ship build, 
you know, you don't have to go whole hog and buy a one three hundred and fifty scale five hundred dollar kit. Yeah, seriously, some of those, uh, and even one two hundred scale, some of the kits yeah. on the market. You know, by the time you're done with the aftermarket and everything, it's unbelievable what they are. I mean, they're beautiful, but ships though are quite a different genre because people will spend a whole year building one. Yeah, you know, with, that's true. When I edited Sam, I was knocking out three aircraft a month for the magazine. You know, and if you do an armor, maybe if you go all in, you'll spend three, four, five months on it. But a lot of people will knock one out in a month. But ships, you just, you can't do it. It takes too long to put the damn things together. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about yourself as a modeler, because, you know, you you you're, you do beautiful aircraft. Obviously, armor is, is a passion of yours. And as we were just talking about, you uh, are also uh, very, very passionate about modeling ships. So how did you get started and what was your first love? I first started building, the first model I can remember building was a Revel. I think it was really small. I don't think it was in 1700. I think like 11250 or something. Turpits with my dad when I was about six. So we're going back to 1980 there, 1981 around that time. And then I built, you know, usual Spitfires, usual Airfix stuff where you, you make it yours by putting a gluey fingerprint on the uh, canopy and, you know, <laughs> so everyone can tell who it, who made it, who ruined it. And uh, hung them off my ceiling where they could get nice and dusty. And then around sort of early teenage years, I got into Warhammer doing the old white metal uh, Warhammer 40K road, what's it called, Road Trader uh, and all that stuff. And then uh, girls rock and roll and what have you. Got more into that sort of thing. Went off to university, forgot all about it. And then when I hit about 30, I remembered I used to read the magazines back when I was a kid, you know, with Napoleonics and Hysterics on the front and stuff like that. And I thought, oh, I'll pick up a model. So I bought the same model everyone probably buys when they get back. I bought a nice big Tiger and uh, and built, well, ruined that. And then uh, I ruined a Panther <laughs> and then a Panzer IV. And I did the Panzer thing for a while. But everyone was doing Panzers. And it was like, you know, it's like going in the ice cream store and every time getting vanilla. So I thought, ah, oh, I want, you know, I want garlic flavor ice cream. I'll do British tanks. And at the time, there was no one doing British tanks. And then lots of British kits came out. And because I'm some sort of perverse contrarian, I thought, well, I'm not going to do that anymore. <laughs> then I'm going to do something else. And I, I stuck with armor for a long time, though. And I did a little bit of everything almost exclusively in 135th scale. I dabbled a bit in ships and I thought I'll build one ship. And that was just, I've always been really into really tiny things. So the smaller the detail I can make, the more interesting I found it. And ships are perfect. So I did ships for a while. And then the job came up at SAM. And I built a couple of aircraft. But I thought I better start making a lot more aircraft or everyone's going to say, why is this shipbuilder editing a an aircraft <laughs> magazine? And then I found that I really love making aircraft. And then that basically cured me of scale and subject. Because then from then on, if something was interesting, don't care about the scale. And also, once you've done one 700 ships, you feel comfortable putting detail on any scale, really. You know, one seventy second armor suddenly becomes a lot more interesting, especially when I discovered uh, Model Collect. And they're amazing. T-72s and stuff like that. And I just, from then on, I, if I like it, I'll build it. The latest thing I've decided, I, I've never done a car, so I've bought some cars, I'll give them a go. And uh, I want to try everything now. I've done figures, a few figures, but I don't like to show them because they look like clowns. <laughs> well, I'm sure they're better than that. TJ, you build Star Wars, right? Oh, on Yeah, on occasion. I do. Yeah. I've been known to do a handful here and there. What's your primary, uh, I can't remember, what's your primary genre? Uh, I mean, I like to fancy myself an armor modeler, but yeah, <laughs> I guess I, that's what I've been doing the most, probably within the last couple of years, uh, outside of Warhammer too. But that's 
that's kind of like I treat those two things like two different, almost like two oh, different yeah. hobbies. I don't, I don't paint my Warhammer stuff to the same standard that I would like my tanks. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't, I, I don't have the time. I don't want to spend the time to do it. Do you do it because you'd like to play and you want the painted yeah. army to play? Yeah. Yeah. I started doing Warhammer again recently because my son got into it, but he's just, I, I don't know, maybe it's genetic. He's got, he's gravitated more towards painting than actually playing, which is a shame because playing with your son is great fun. So. Oh, I see that's I started with just pretty much painting Warhammer stuff. I play like one game. It was cool, but I just liked uh, I like the figures because I knew them from video games. Mm. And then probably here within the last little over a year, it's when I've actually like learned all the rules and play pretty regularly. But uh, I would like to ask you about the Soviet armor in foreign wars book. Yeah, that one like really caught my eye because uh, I'm a big fan of Soviet armor. And I also like vehicles in general, but especially armor in service with another country, normally no matter what it is, yeah. especially Soviet armor. Can you tell me a little bit about that book? Yeah, that, that book came about because I was building a bit of Russian armor. Also at the time, it just seemed really popular. Oh, sorry, I use Russian now. I didn't mean Soviet because specifically the armor we were looking at was from uh, Soviet Union and Eastern Bloc countries. So it's not just, uh, I know Russian and Soviet isn't a synonym and uh, Russians get pretty upset when uh, when people use it that way. Uh, understandably, really. It's like when um, people call Scots English, <laughs> they don't like it. So we thought, you know, it's pretty popular and all the wars in the in the Middle East were happening and I don't like to model stuff that's going on at the time, but this was around the period that the Libyan war was, well, we thought it was over, obviously it's still rumbling on, but and we didn't, I don't think we covered Syria in the book. And we just thought it's pretty cool. You see all this stuff, you know, in Iraqi hands or uh, Libyan hands or what have you, and they put funky camos on it and different uniforms and stuff like that. And also, you know what it's like. Like a lot of armor modelers, I like stuff that's been bust up or destroyed or stuff like that because being someone that's really – I mean, if I have a favorite genre, it's scratch build it. It doesn't matter what it is as long as I can scratch build it. And that was a great opportunity to scratch build lots of stuff. So the theory behind it was that because I was known as a builder, and because I've always been kind of self-conscious about my painting, that I don't think it's up there to the to the right standard. I built a load of models, sent them to other people, and they painted them. That's basically how it worked. Except for Ken Abrams, who did all of his on his own, which was brilliant because Ken's a phenomenal builder and an absolutely phenomenal painter as well. A really nice guy too. We thought, well, we'll, we'll break it down. We'll do some different vehicles, a different chapter. We'll chuck some research in and we'll print it on high-quality paper and do everything else. It made it weigh 1,200 grams, which put it into the parcel category instead of the letter category, which meant it didn't sell because no one could afford to ship it. <laughs> so although it's the book I'm one of the books I'm most proud of, I've got a lot of them still. But I'll send you a copy. Send me your address. I'll send you a copy. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, that, that's awesome. I, I love modeling books, and I don't have the biggest collection because it's kind of like a recent love of mine. Mm. Um, so I've, I'm like always on the lookout to to find something to add to the collection. I got a nice bookshelf with hardly any, well, I got lots of books, but not a lot of modeling books. I generally buy reference books more than modeling books. I do like modeling books, but there's an awful lot that don't actually tell you much. Right. And the aim with Inside the Armor was always to tell you more and to tell you, firstly, well, like Mike Rinaldi was saying, I very much believe what he, he espouses, that not just to tell you what you did, but why and how as well. And the why right. and the how are more important than, than what you did really. But there are, yeah, there are a lot of books out there which kind of go, you know, they're like the draw an owl, draw a circle, draw the rest of the owl. And that's you know, <laughs> kind of what they do. <laughs> well, it looks like from 
the pictures on your Facebook page uh, that TJ and I are both, uh, as we've said, British armor fans as well mm-hmm. as Russian Russian armor fans. You got some great photos on there, and then also I noticed you have some photos of like a Samoa S thirty five and some you know, you know unique armored cars. Uh, mm-hmm. What are some of your favorite modeling subjects that you like to do when you're modeling armor? Anything that's unusual. I mean, recently I've got really into modeling Japanese armor just because you don't see it much. And when you do, it's always the same ones. And it's always it's always uh, a chiha and it's always with a palm tree behind it. You know, and it's kind of like, Whoa. I got really into reading about the Pacific War, but particularly as well about the, the second Sino-Japanese War, uh, Nomenhan and, uh, and all that stuff as well, you know, Kalkin Gol. So there, there is a book coming towards the end of the year about Japanese armor, modeling Japanese armor, where I've got um, a great guy from Japan, a, a researcher over there has written a research article as well and drawn some profiles for it. But it's anything that's unusual. I just don't like, this is the same reason I like scratchboard. I don't like making a model that looks like someone else's model. If I, I want to make a model, which is mine, which, you know, is, I know that no one else has ever made exactly like that. Even if it's yeah. just buying different decals for an aircraft, just, or, or making masks and doing your own markings for an aircraft just to make it your own. Yeah, it definitely seems to be a common theme with your work, for sure. I think it's common for a lot of modelers, though. Now. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, there's something to be said about making something yours, like, mm-hmm. in, in any way. Even, like, even if you do, like, a tank, like, everyone's done um, Jumbo Sherman that has first and Bastogne written on it, right? Like, everyone's yeah. done that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen it done better than sometimes than others, though. Right. And there's every once in a while you'll see someone do one and it, it just makes it, he, they do something special to make it stand out above the crowd. Yeah. Cause it's been done to that and with Thunderbolt four or whatever. Mm. I think that was like Creighton Abrams tank. Even if you just add a different stowage or, or something, you know, something like that just to make it yours instead of just like, Oh look, here's this same thing that you've seen 8 million times with nothing special about it. A lot of people will pick a famous subject, but they'll go no further than getting roughly the right type and putting the right markings on it. And I really appreciate it when someone really drills down and finds as many photos as they can, say, of first in Bastogne and says, you know, like, this, the world's on this one slightly different or something, or, you know, people usually model this as a big hatch and it was a small hatch. And, and they get it absolutely bang on. Because if right. you're going to do a famous subject, I'm a bit of a rivet counter, I have to say, and I, it annoys me that people use that as a, ter- a pejorative term. But I like to get... I agree. If you're going to do it, get it. Be definitive. Make the best one you can. Otherwise, what's the point in doing a famous subject everyone's done before? Yeah, that's why I, I know me personally, I I love uh, reference photos, and I have a folder on my, my computer full of them. Yeah. I've only built one vehicle from a reference. I got... I, as close as I could think I could get because I only had one picture of it, but I, I, I don't know. I just kind of stray away from that because I don't, some of it's like vanity. I don't want to be that guy that built the famous one, but then screws it up. Right. Like <laughs> not that like, no. like anyone would ever know or care, but like in my head, I'm like, Oh, everyone thinks that I screwed this up. No, I think, I think that's a great point, Chris. Like one of the aircraft I've always really loved was Gabreski's P 47, but it's so unique and it's been done so many times. You know, it's kind of like, well, what what am I going to really bring to that P-47, you know, because of the camouflage and everything is just so, so overdone that, you know, what am I going to bring to that subject? So I definitely follow you there. I did actually, Lieutenant Edwin King's P-47, you know, the one that's um, covered in oil. 
Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, I did that one, and I really want to do that again because I know I used slightly the wrong version of the P47. I got the mm. oil mark slightly wrong on the tail. It was too high up on the A on the tail. It should have been lower, and the oil wasn't glossy enough. So it's almost like you're polishing the idea. that I want to go back and do it again, but do it better. Oh, that's that's an iconic, uh, you know, set of photographs of that. So, yeah, that would be incredible. I wanted to talk a little bit about your books, uh, Scratch ba- Scratch Building Masterclass and More Scratch Building Masterclass. I think they're probably some of, you know, the books that you're most known for. I've always been into scratch building. I like the idea that you can make anything you want. And it's like alchemy starting with flat plastic sheet and rod and what have you. And I've always been really, when I first went to Euromilitaire, Oh gosh, when was that? Probably about 10 years ago, something like that. The category I most enjoyed was the scratch building category. There's a guy, I can't remember his name, Erski something from Finland, amazing guy, amazing modeler. And uh, he makes coastal guns purely out of brass. He machines them out, himself out of brass. And uh, well, I say machines, he turns the barrel on the lathe, but then he like hand forms and what have you. He's weird, like you've never heard of, 19th century, 137.9 millimeter or whatever, you know, weird caliber coastal guns and there was also some other guys there that were scratch building armor and i thought this this stuff's amazing i can't get this in a kit and it looks really weird and funky and it's, i want to do this so i started out doing a little like everyone does you know wrap handles on turrets and stuff like that and i got really into scratch building but when i did the first scratch building masterclass, i've got this thing that i don't want to like make myself out to be better than i am or anything like that so i didn't put myself in the book because i was embarrassed to put myself in the book, if you see what I mean. I thought it would look boastful. So instead, I got some other guys to do it, and they were better than me, so that was, that worked out just great. One was George Moore, who does the Masters for Resicast. So if you've bought a Resicast kit, there's a 99% probability George Moore mastered it. Another was Stephen Tegner, who's one of these guys people don't really know, but he scratch builds one-sixth stuff. He's got into 3D printing now, but he um, he made a one-sixth Char B with complete engine, transmission, absolutely everything in it. He's done T uh, KV-1. He's done the Panzer 38T. He's done all kinds of stuff. Amazing scratch board. And so forth. well, definitely get him in. It's definitely what, you know, what they call man scale when the track link's bigger than some tanks I built. <laughs> and Alex Clark, another one. What I know Alex done books, but yet again, when people are talking like, oh, Mickey Menez, or Mike Rinaldi, or, you know, uh, Adam Wilder, all these are amazing, like, gods of modeling. But Alex should be up there. Alex is absolutely incredible. He can scratch build a 172nd engine and transmission for a T72 with just as much detail as most people will put on a 135th one. And it amazes me how he does it because it gets to a level with styrene when you're manipulating it, where you're fighting the material, where it will fracture. As soon as you try and cut it, it will just cut off. And what it is is tiny weaknesses in the plastic, which is caused by heat and by uh, variations in heat when it's being molded. And it will just come up. And how he does it, if I try and do that, I end up with like half a lump. And he's just like, oh, yeah, I'll just whittle this engine out of a piece of plastic. (laughs) Off he goes, you know. Absolutely, but so modest when you meet him. So I thought, yeah, he's got to go in. And, of course, uh, David Parker, who, again, is a modeler. Everybody should know. David's been in modeling and has been scratch building, I think, longer than a lot of people know. AFE Modeler, I believe, is 20 years old, but he's been doing it. He's been involved in scratch building and masters and a lot of other stuff a lot longer than that. He just doesn't, it's not that he doesn't blow his own trumpet. It's like he threw his trumpet away or something. He just doesn't <laughs> like to boast. He's too modest, but he's probably one of the best modelers I know. 
his his determination is just you know impressive i mean he just he refuses to move on until that bolt or that stamping or that lever until he's uncovered exactly what that needs to look like and then he's found a way to do it his research is incredible too yeah, yeah. he really spends a lot of time on that and he doesn't a lot of guys including me actually get to a point where you just think hey yeah, yeah, close enough he doesn't he's he gets close enough is when it's exactly right when he knows and if there's any doubt in it he keeps looking until he finds out so he's not just doing a panzer four at the moment he's doing a what is it neblin work or something but you know and he's making sure it's absolutely spot on for that to the point where the one he went to look at had a chassis number that was very close to the chassis number of the one he wants to model in normandy so he knows that the one he's specifically doing which i think is 12th ss if i'm not mistaken in normandy would have come off the production line within probably a few days or a week of the one that he went to to research. So even to that sort of nth degree, he's doing it. And it's absolutely, you know, my hat's so far off, it's unbelievable. He's the leading member of what I call the Breaky Fingers Club, which are a group of modelers with Robert Dopp and uh, Adam Wilder, who if I ever see them, I'm going to break their fingers because they're too good. <laughs> they're too good at making models and it makes the rest of us look bad. Yeah, yeah, we understand where that's at. Oh, yeah. You know, one of our, one of our, break the fingers guys is martin kovach you know you oh, watch yeah, a night yeah, shift yeah. video and he's like yeah i've never done a figure before so i'm gonna do one and it didn't turn out very good and you look at it and you go okay <laughs> look at my clown posse <laughs> yeah and then and then that barn have you seen that barn that he hit that he did recently and i to get too far off topic here here but, he is again another person yeah. who can't do anything badly I know, right? Yeah. Like, I don't think he could. I don't think he could screw up if he tried. It's like he's allergic to it or something. Well, um, you also do a ship modeler magazine. I did. I had to stop doing it because no one bought it. I think there were two reasons for that. One, because it ships; it's just too niche. Another is because not many people were buying it. I couldn't afford to pay the authors anymore, and I don't believe in in making people work for free. It's just not on. I think also because it was PDF. I think people were sharing it. Basically, they weren't buying it; they were just sharing it. And people think, oh, if I just give it to a couple of friends, it won't make a difference. But every single sale makes a difference. So I'll just I'll follow on from that a little bit. I will do a ship book at some point, but I don't think I'll do the magazine again. Also, I learned with doing Sam that um, it's a really punishing schedule trying to put out. Well, you must know what it's like with the with the podcast. You think that's oh, not really that much work, but when you come to do it, it's a lot of work. And knowing it has to be done on time because people are expecting it on time and everything else, it's easier just to do a book. You can take as long as you want. As long as you don't put it up for pre-orders too long before you know it's going to go to print, you're fine. Yeah, don't just don't get that date out there because then people yeah. get, get upset. Yeah. If you put the date on, it ain't going to happen. It really is. <laughs> <laughs> Even if you think, oh, I'll add a month just to be clever. No, 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 no. You're, just, you're cursing yourself straight on. With a lot of our guests, Chris, we've been talking about, you know, model shows mm. and uh, kind of the experience, you know, the experiences everybody has with those. and. You're fortunate enough to be over in the UK that has some of the best shows there are. You know, do you have uh, maybe maybe tell uh, some of our non-UK listeners what UK shows are alike and what you like about them and, you know, that kind of thing? I'm a bit weird. I'm not overly fond of UK shows. I like European shows. So I go to Scale Model Challenge in Eindhoven, which I think is probably the best show I've ever been to anywhere. And uh, Mosin, which is in, um, uh, I think it's called Mosin Magivar in uh, Hungary, which is the second best show I've been to. They are absolutely phenomenal. 
I like Shizoka as well, but it's a little bit expensive to get to. So uh, obviously, I and with COVID, it's been a nightmare. We can't go anywhere or do anything. So I haven't been to any shows for a long time. We're just uh, on our way, TJ and I, to our very first IPMS Nationals. Vegas? In, in August, yes, in yeah. Vegas. Cool. Looking forward to it. I've heard it's pretty big. So what, what sort of attendance do they get? They're saying there's going to be – they're forecasting about 3,500 models. Yeah. Um. So that's it's pretty big, I think. I mean – Your shows I've, are I've different only- though, right? If you take a model, it goes in the competition, yeah? Um, I, I, it's optional, but I think yeah. most people compete. Yeah, yeah. Because here, certainly at Scale Model World, the, the UK IPMS nationals, there's probably about fifty thousand models on the tables. No, that can't be right. It must be like ten thousand, something like that. It's three great big hangers full of it, basically. But they're all display, and then the competition is maybe one thousand five hundred models. At Scale Model Challenge, there is some display, but it's like three and a half thousand models in competition. Although. Probably half of that will be figures, and they don't take up a lot of room, right? So you could fit a lot in. <laughs> so you earlier you mentioned you did some Warhammer, you know, and TJ obviously is a a big Warhammer fan. Uh, what armies did you did you do? Oh, I do Smurfs. I do Ultramarines. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. I I had Ultramarines for uh, for, for a long time, and I still have, I actually still have a few floating around uh, that I haven't repainted. Um, so like some of my original ones, uh, I mean, I don't have them on display or anything, but mm, I don't know. I kind of feel bad like repainting them or, or getting rid of them. So they kind of live in a little drawer on my desk, but sometimes it's good to keep old stuff as well to look at, to remind yourself how far you come really and how much better you've got it. Yeah. So that that's actually an interesting thing. Um, so I've recently pulled the first tank that I built out of my cabinet and, thought about touching it up which i did and uh that i found that to be a very divisive uh, idea um on the internet i posted it in a group and i was like hey i'm gonna think about touching this up it you know i made it like four years ago and when i was first starting out with with armor and i think i could make it better without just completely redoing it which i didn't want to do but you know just tweaking it yeah and most most of the people are like oh no i don't don't do that no you don't want to do that i wouldn't do that and i'm like okay that's fine but I'm going to. Why not? Where where do you, yeah, where do you fall like on that? Would you have you done that, or would you do that? Like take something that you've done years ago and just freshen it up. I guess that's how I that's how I phrase it. I guess I've I freshened it up. No, because uh, my construction's improved a lot since then. So the, the generally the standard of construction of my old stuff isn't good enough for me. In fact, most of my old models get thrown in the bin. For me, I've got a few models on display at home, but for me, modeling, the fun of it is in making the model and finishing the model. It's not in having done a model, in having a finished model. So I really don't care at all about finished models. But I really don't understand why you can't go back and touch it up. I don't understand why that upset people, I have to admit. I didn't think it would either, but it definitely did. I mean, it's like kind of having an old canvas and painting a new painting over it. You're just practicing, you know. Right. And on your craft, you know. Yeah, and because everyone's like, "Well, just build another one." I'm like, "But I don't, I don't want to build a whole another one. Like, yeah. I don't have that much time. I, I've already built one. I have another one, and maybe I'll build it one day. But I don't, I don't have that in my foreseeable future. I, there's other things I'm working on, other things I want to work on to do something I've already done. Yeah, maybe one day when I'm old and retired, sure. But like, I'm not that yet, so my time is is relatively limited. Yeah, it was, it was a weird, it was a, it was a weird, like couple of days 
I, I eventually yeah. was like, look, I was like, look, everyone, I, I, I appreciate the comments, but like, I don't want to sound like a, like a dick, but like, I don't, I don't really care if you don't think I should, or you wouldn't. I, that's not, that wasn't my question. I think you've got the dick thing backwards there. I don't think it was you being the dick. <laughs> this is not a team sport. You know, people don't get to tell you how to play. That's true. That's true. You know, I'm glad you mentioned the canvas thing because I've got a little bit of a spin. We ask a lot of our guests this question. And it's, you know, as model builders is modeling art. And I'd like to know where you're so passionate about detail and specifically scratch building and getting every little, you know, bracket and weld and and thing there. Is that piece of it art? Because I think some people think that's very technical, but I'm interested to hear your take on that. Okay. This is a deeply unpopular opinion with pretty much everyone I know, certainly all my, my friends in modeling. Modeling is not art. Art's something different. Okay. I, I studied art at university. I studied fine art, painting and printmaking. And the reason people make art and the way they make art and what they're trying to achieve with art is different to what we're trying to achieve with modeling. For me, art with a capital A is about provoking feelings or thought or contemplation. Like if I'm stood in front of a Rothko, then which I like to do, I love Rothko, particularly if you can get there on your own and there's no one else making noise and annoying you and stuff. And so you can really kind of communicate with it, if that doesn't sound too pretentious, which it probably does, is uh, it's really intense. You get this kind of deep contemplative feelings, deep thoughts. Well, assuming that it clicks with you, obviously, if it doesn't, it doesn't. And it really evokes something in you that nothing else does. Now, the problem with this point of view I got, that modeling is not art, that art is art and modeling isn't art, is that people think that means I don't think modeling is as valuable as art. I definitely think it is. I think the problem sometimes when people want modeling to be art, and I'm not accusing you two of this at all, is that they kind of want to give it some sort of legitimacy, that it's culturally as valuable and as important as painting or sculpture or anything else. It is. It definitely is. Why, why wouldn't it be? It's a human pursuit that you put everything into. If you do it well, you make something that's unique, which is like art, but it's not the same thing as art. It doesn't have the same purpose and it doesn't have the same outcome. That doesn't mean it's less valuable. It's definitely as valuable. We need another name for it. We need to elevate the perception of modeling without borrowing the name of art. Yeah, that's an interesting viewpoint. The reason I wanted to kind of frame that within the reference of scratch building is I think what disqualifies finely finished model from art in a lot of people's mind is that we start with a kit. So somebody has done some of the work for us, right? They've we buy a, a box, we open up the box, it's got the parts that are essentially in the shape of what we're going to do. So that sort of steers people down the road of it's a craft, it's not an art, because as opposed to writing a song on a guitar or sculpting something out of a piece of marble, there's a creative process that makes that, you know, from, from the get-go versus modeling. But scratch building is actually, I think, a little bit different in that there isn't a box of parts. You open up a drawer and grab a bunch of materials like granite or clay or paint, and then you start creating something. It's still not art (laughs) because when I scratch build, (laughs) I'm copying something real. I'm not inventing something. You could argue that like figure sculptors that sculpt some fantasy figure purely out their mind, you could argue that's art. But when I scratch build, to me, I, I sucked at technical drawing at school. I was really bad. They made me go and do something else. (laughs) <laughs> but I love that stuff. And my father was a mechanic in the Royal Marines. He was a very technical person. He repaired, you know, trucks and landing craft and all kinds of random stuff. 
And I, I didn't appreciate that when I was younger. He died when I was quite young, but I wish I'd learned from him about repairing cars and stuff like that. For me, it's closer to that. And I really appreciate when someone closer to, I want to say to engineering, but my wife's an engineer and she killed me. She hates it when people that repair stuff call themselves engineers. You're not an engineer, you're a repairman. Uh, <laughs> so I have to be careful with the E word. Yeah, for me, it's closer to that. But again, that's just as good as art. I, I used to live, I, I don't know if I mentioned I mentioned it to you before we started the interview. I used to live in Singapore, and one of the things I loved in Singapore, because I'm a great big fat guy, was Murtabak, which is like an Asian Singaporean, I think it comes from the Indian subcontinent, pancake type thing. And they make this like really thin roti, and they put meat in it and stuff like that, and they fold it up, and it's great. It's delicious, spicy, lovely. But I used to be fascinated when I ordered it, watching the guy making the roti, because he start off with a ball of dough. People are switched off by now listening to this. You know that, right? He started off with the ball of dough and his hands knew what to do. You could tell he'd done it a million times and it was just absolutely perfect. There was no movement he made that didn't finish the job or, you know, advance the job. There was no, nothing wasted. It was, it was poetry to watch. Absolutely amazing. And the guy's just spreading dough and he'd like flip it out, put the stuff in, cook it. There you go. And I really like stuff like that. I really like people that have practiced their skill over and over and over again until they get really good at it. And that's what gives me a thrill scratch building. When I make stuff now, although I'm not up there with a lot of people, just the familiarity with the tools and with the materials are what I enjoy. If I want to make something, I pretty much, once I've visualized in my head and broken it down into shapes, I pretty much know exactly how I'm going to make it. And that's the joy of it in, in knowing that it's a learned skill and that every time you use the skill, you're polishing the skill. But when I'm painting, that's more like when I was at college. Because once you get familiarity with the materials, your front brain switches off and your hind brain makes all the decisions about colour and about mixing colour and stuff like that. And that's that's closer to art. That's closer to how I used to feel when I was doing paintings. But scratch building, no, that, that's mechanical. You cut this bit out because it was really boring. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I think it's a, I think it's an interesting discussion, you know, especially bringing uh, food preparation into it. You know, people that are chefs and those kind of things, I think it's interesting. You get the same watching a carpenter. A carpenter knows exactly how to touch wood, how to use wood, how to cut wood. They know that if they cut on that angle of the grain, it's going to be a bad job. So without even stopping and thinking, how am I going to do this? They just do it. And I think when you get really good with your tools and your materials, that's where you get to, basically. I mean, I would definitely say that's probably the most nuanced and thorough answer to that question we've ever gotten. I think about it a lot. <laughs> My wife's like, what are you thinking about? I'm like, thinking about scratch building. <laughs> That's, that's great. Most of the time it's like, yeah, sure. Or nah, not really. That, uh, no, that's, that's awesome. That was great. The important thing for me is that although it, I don't think it's art, I think it's as valuable as art. We just need a new name for it. Modeling needs to not be toys. It's not toys, you know, and, and people have that opinion of it and they need to appreciate it as, you know, miniaturists, I guess. I don't know. It's, it's interesting when, when you talk to someone that doesn't, is not familiar with modeling, and, and you're just talking about it to them and they're like, you do what? They, they're not really like piecing it together. And, and like what they think of is toys yeah, and toy look looking things. And then like, I mean, it, this just literally just happened to me on Thursday at work and I, I'm in construction. So I was talking to a bunch of construction workers, well, project managers are office jockeys, but they're in, they're in the field. It's not their fault. You know, and I'm telling them what I'm, what I do. And, they, I can see the, the the wheels like turning in the head, like trying to picture like, w w okay, well, what like you build a model like like out of wood, like, I'm like yeah. no, it's it's plastic. 
and they they can't they don't really get it and they're like oh here let me just show you a picture and I'll get out my phone I I show them something I did and they look at it and like oh oh like that oh yeah. okay I, I, that makes sense now I wonder how many walk away thinking well where, where can I find out about this stuff <laughs> uh, well hopefully I mean they're all young guys so I'm like yeah sure well the one well, I mean one person was like very like asking a ton of questions about it but and it's funny because it, um one of them asked me about I was like oh do you like like build it from like sheets of plastic or whatever i'm like oh no no that that's that's scratch building i'm like that's that's a whole other thing man like i that's not me i i, I don't know i don't know if that'll ever be me but it definitely isn't now black magic if you want to get into scratch building you have to learn to like sanding i'll tell you that right now you'll be <laughs> filling and sanding a lot that's like 90 percent of scratch building i was actually thinking about this toy thing the other day and and i think you know the biggest reason people uh, associate models with toys is I think for a long time, that's where you bought model kits was at a toy store. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you still do in Germany. Revel, that's that's why Revel is so cheap and badly packaged. It's because there's so many department stores and toy stores, right? Yeah. Also with Airfix, you know, when you say Airfix, most people think of something on a in a bag with a cardboard hanger and the newsagent store here. You know, they used to go and spend their pocket money on it and then squeeze a tube of glue all over it and stuff. And they think, you know. In fact, when I my wife outed me when I was out with some friends, and she said, uh, <laughs> "He built models." <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> she she was like, I don't know. I guess she was. I don't know if I'd say proud of it, but she thought, "Well, what's wrong with that?" You know, it's interesting. But they would turn around and went, "What? Like airfix?" He's <laughs> like, "No, I've got standards." But no, no, I didn't say that. <laughs> yeah, so, but. <laughs> They, yeah, and it was like, yeah, you, yeah, but it's a whole thing. You do this stuff to it, and it's more than that. It's more than it's not a toy. Yeah, Brett talked about that. Brett Green, when he was on, he he talked about going to the news state newsstand yeah. and buying the bagged kits. It's something we we didn't really see here in the U.S. It was pretty much go to the toy store or the drug store yeah. and you know pick up a kit that way. And maybe Walmart we, or something. Do you get them there? Yeah, yeah, a little bit now. Although it's it's harder and harder. You know, the brick and mortar shops for a long time kind of took up that role, but mm. um, obviously those are all kind of gradually fading away. Um, there's still a few around. Yeah, we, we have a really good one in Bristol, uh, Antics, which is part of a chain of four, but it's great. I mean, they, they've actually started stocking more scale models now than they used to. Uh, I mean, they always had a good section, but what you can tell by that is that it's growing, that more people are getting into it. I don't know if it's because of lockdown or what, but, it you know, it's... um. It's relatively healthy if you've got the right store, but they've got an online presence. And a lot of the old mom and pop stores didn't. And, you know, these days to survive, you have to have both. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And here in the U.S., there's a couple of things that are really driving the resurgence in young people getting into the hobby. And that's Warhammer from Games yep. Workshop and, and what they're doing. And the other thing is what Bandai's doing with Star Wars and especially with Gunpla. The Gunpla movement here is really, really big as far as the youth goes you know the older modelers like us sorry mm -hmm. guys um well you know that they're still kind of buying online and buying your aircraft and yep. armor and your your so-called traditional subjects but we had a debate about that here i'm a bit ageist when it comes to modelers there's a generation that grew up i'm gen x i think i'm not sure born in the 70s that's gen so x. i'm between it you've got a lot of modelers here that are in their late 50s 60s even 70s that grew up on the whittle out of wood, buy it in a baggie from Airfix kind of generation. You know, we didn't have kits back then. We had to cross, we had to scratch, build half, vert it, and all this. And it's like, yeah, it's great, granddad. Thanks very much. 
and then you've got the kids that are into Warhammer. And, and I, st- I don't think of myself as an old generation, but we are. I'm in middle age. I kind of feel like sometimes that older generation won't let go of the reins here. They're kind of in charge of modeling, of what modeling is, of IPMS and all that stuff. And they they have Airfix make and take at shows, which is great. You can, although Airfix, Airfix don't do it for free and they should because it's massive promo. But they give you a load of kit. No, they don't. They sell you a load of kits cheap and some paint and stuff. Nasty ass 170 second stuff that you wouldn't build because it doesn't go together. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and they expect kids to enjoy that in inverted commas. And they come along and they build it and they take it away and they paint it while the glue's still wet and all the stuff you still do so that the undercarriage collapses and all that sort of stuff. And I said to them, why don't you talk to Games Workshop? Why don't you get them to give you, you know, they did the magazines where you get a space marine on the front, stuff like that. Those things go together virtually without glue. Why don't you talk to Games Workshop? Kids are far more likely to want to put together a space marine than an ME109, you know, and it's, it's easy, it's fun, they're easy to paint. You can paint them how you want. You don't have to worry about it being realistic. You know, you can make it pink with green dots if you want. You do whatever you want with Space Marine. Although, if you try and play with it in the case Workshop shop, then you might get some looks, right? <laughs> if you haven't put the highlight around everything. Yeah. But I just thought, if you want to get kids into it, it's Bandai and, and Games Workshop. It's not Airfix. It's just a different generation. They'll go on to that. It's not like modeling is stop, going to stop being about scale models. It's, it's the gateway drug. You know, we need to stand outside the school gates handing out Space Marines. Getting them hooked. <laughs> <laughs> your first, your first uh, space marines free. Space marine go, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, first hit's always free. You'll be on Eldar before you know it. <laughs> <laughs> Not Tau. Don't get Tau. They're rubbish. Oh yeah, no, no, no. My son liked Tau. He wanted to get a Tau army, and he makes me play as him now. And it's like you just can't win with those guys. They suck. <laughs> they look cool. They look really cool. They're great fun to paint. Oh yeah, the the big. Battle suits and all that stuff. Yeah, they, yeah. They, they're really slick looking. And the tanks and stuff. I had a handful of them just because I bought the because they look cool. But I think I sold most of them off because I was like, I'm never ever gonna build or paint this. Yeah, their stuff's good as well. I mean, some of the older molds is not great, but the newer stuff, you know, it's really oh, yeah, we, pretty we, sharp. Yeah, we've talked about that in in some group chats that I think Scott and I are in. It's just yeah, like it's it's frankly impressive what they can do these days. It's, you know, a lot of like Warhammer players don't really understand the technology yeah. of uh, making a mold and making a kit and they complain about it and it's, you know, blah, 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 blah. But I'm like, uh, man, like, this is pretty good. Like, I don't Especially think you, you, I don't think you the, understand the sacrifices they make to make it easy to assemble. You know, the, yes. the, that's why the details like it is. And considering yeah. that, they still pull it off really well. Yeah, I it's I mean they still do a couple like funky things especially with like uh their attachment points. They've gotten way better at it. Yeah. The old plastic it's like attachment points like, you know, that big on like the smallest piece yeah. ever, but you know they that's still it happens from time to time, but for, like for the most part they're gap free and go together perfect like every every single time. Also I've noticed you very rarely get a step in the mold on uh games workshop stuff, which you get a lot on you know lots of other kits bigger names yeah. but you know who's got time to sand off the uh what what gamer's going to want to sand off a step on the leg of a space marine armor you know it's, you yep. can get that it's nice smooth transition maybe a seam line to clean up that's about it and even even nowadays like i've noticed with some of the, the newer kits the seam lines are almost non-existent yeah like al- almost to the point where you don't even need to address them they're they're actually i have a few in my collection that i i distinctly remember when i was building there was no seam line like at all and I'm like, well, that just makes my job 
a million well, maybe. times easier. You find it when you put a wash on. You're like, damn, I didn't oh, see yeah. that before because <laughs> yeah. it was so yeah. fine. <laughs> that, that definitely always happens to me. It's still, I mean, that happens to me when I build freaking tanks too. I, oh, I, it happens on to the, the, cru- the Crusader I'm building, I took a picture of the turret and sent it in a group chat. And the first comment is like, hey, you missed a mode light on that antenna mount. I'm like, oh, God damn it. <laughs> I did. And, and then the oh, on the machine gun. I was like, God damn, I missed another one. <laughs> what do you do? Do you go back and fix it or do you leave it? Oh, no, I fixed it. Good man. Good man. I was going to be like, yeah, you'll never notice it. The, at least the one on the antenna mount, the one on the machine gun. Yeah. I was like, holy shit. How did I, how did it's I miss that? Point, isn't it? Yeah. You, you're not going to hide that. It's like Will says, you know, you got to fix that shit. Yes. And I did. I fixed both of them. It sucked, but cause it was already painted. Well, the antenna mount was the, the machine gun was not other than like primed or whatever. I hadn't actually painted it. Whatever color. You learn a lesson though, don't you? You learn to be a little bit more. Be careful with it next time and to look for it and stuff like that. Oh, so, yeah. 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 It's the same with scratch building. The problem with scratch building is because everything is white, you kind of get a bit of snow blindness. There's seams in places or like rough bits where you've cut something and not finished it off quite well enough that you can't see and you don't know until the first coat of primer. And the first coat of primer sometimes could be heartbreaking. You think, great, okay, I've got to cut that whole bit out and start again. <laughs> or it's like, very rare you put it on and you find, oh, yes, yeah, it's, it's perfect. Yeah, it's hard to see, like you said. Yeah. Well, one thing I wanted to ask you about, um, Chris, is um, you know, not not to get into politics at all. That isn't what this is about. But <laughs> you guys are in the reality of Brexit, yeah. and I know that business for you know cottage industries and and small companies like yours have suffered because of you know tax issues and mm. import duties and everything. How how's inside the armor been handling that? For a while, we didn't basically. It was left where, I like the good old days where you ship something to somewhere and if they ha- they get caught by customs and they have to pay taxes, then they get caught and they have to pay taxes. But the EU is a lot tighter on it than a lot of countries are. So everything more or less gets stopped. And the problem is I'd send a book to someone that, you know, they they spent £25 on, what's that, like $30, something like that. And then another £15, $20 on shipping because I send everything tracked. And they'd be paying... 20% VAT, which you pay on the shipping and the item. You don't just pay on the item. And they'd be paying a handling fee of another $25. So they'd be paying twice as much, basically, to get their stuff. So that that can't go on. So for the short term, I'm trying to get my stuff on eBay, but then they've started making me jump through more hoops. I don't know why. I was already registered with them, and my bank was checked out with them and everything else. But it's like, yeah, we're going to get you to do it again. So all right, I'll do it again. It's because they want, they want to do deferred payments now which is a pain because for a small business, cash flow is a real issue. But what can you do? You know, you, you, places like that and Amazon, they set the terms and you either accept them or you get lost, basically. So you got to do it. They take less than Amazon. Amazon take nearly 40% once all the fees are gone. More if you're fulfilled by Amazon. eBay take like 15%. But the benefit for me of selling to Europe through eBay is that when they buy, they pay their VAT at the time of purchase, not at the time of receipt, which means they get a code which goes on the package which means customs won't stop it because they know the VAT has already been collected. But I don't have to do it. I don't have to register with tax offices in Brussels or some stuff because eBay are the registered seller. So they handle all of that. I don't have to worry about it. So that's what I'm going to do for the time being, but I'm looking at getting VAT registered in the EU. The problem for me was that books in the UK were zero rated for VAT, which meant although technically they were liable for value-added sales tax, it was a 0%. So you never pay tax on it. So the problem for me, uh, when I, we were in the EU, if I sold a book to the EU, come back next week for more accountancy matters. Um, <laughs> when I sold a book to the EU, 
they didn't pay tax on it because you pay the level of tax in the country where it's sold, not in the country where it's received. So it was 0%. But now they have to pay 20% on top of it because that's what Europe charges. So it's a real shame. My books have gone up 20% in Europe, basically. But what can you do? You know, I voted to stay, 52% voted to leave. Well, hopefully uh, things kind of normalize and get back to normal as far as business. Uh, Hate to see... You know, it's 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 hard enough to do it as a small business, let alone uh, with those kinds of challenges that are out of your control. Being self-employed, I don't know if either of you guys are or have been, and it's the same there, but you're one bad job away from going bust. If I print a book and it doesn't sell, likelihood is I won't be able to print another book. So yeah, it's already on a kind of a knife edge. You have to pick your products very carefully and you have to mix it up as well. You do low volume low profit jobs that you think will sell quickly, but you'll get a little bit of money back for, and then build up to a high volume, high profit job and you have to mix it. If you do all the big jobs all the time, it's just too much risk. Whereas the small jobs moderate your risk a bit. A lot of modelers go into, some listeners might find this interesting. A lot of modelers want to go into the model business and you really do have to start learning about business if you're going to do that. Unfortunately, most of them think if I've got a great product, people will just buy it. Well, for one thing, you need to learn how to sell it. You need to learn how to even just tell people it exists. Because I still get people saying, oh, I've never heard of you. It's like, really? Because I talk about it non-bloody stop. <laughs> That's all I am. I'm like the shameless self-promoter from hell. And they're still like, oh, I didn't know you did that. You weren't listening, were you? I always say with modelers, if you want them to know you've got something, you have to hit them over the head with it. Yeah. And, you know, you have to realize when you get into it, if you're going to do it as a business, that it's 90% business, 10% modeling. Yeah, so your passion's only going to carry you so far. You need that business sense. I mean, I still love doing it. You know, when you see someone building a kit you've made or talking about a book you printed or wrote, it's the biggest thrill. It's like when you get an article published and you see your name in print. I've been doing that now for eight years or 10 years, something like that. It's still as much of a thrill now to see an article of mine in a book or a magazine that I didn't print. If I printed it, that doesn't count, obviously. But uh, (laughs) as it was the first time it happened. I don't know what, well, no one does it for the money, you know, when you see what you get paid for magazine articles, but to to see it in there is just a huge thrill every time. I like doing it for other people now. I like to publish them, give that, you know, give them that thrill too. If somebody has an article that, you know, they wanted to talk to you about, how would they get in touch with you, Chris? Just send me an email at info at insidethearmor.com or find me on Facebook, Chris Meddings, or on Twitter, Chris Meddings. Yeah, I'm not one of these people that goes for, for, uh, Funny fake names because <laughs> people want to find you. They're not going to look for Albert McStinky or something. You know? And just a review uh, where people can uh, pick up uh, your kits or your publications, your books, anything like that? From insidethearmor.com or from, you know, whatever your local model store is, ask them to get it for you. And if they deal with a big distributor, the likelihood is the distributor will contact me and we can sort that out. I make more money selling direct, but I'd rather people pay the least they had to pay to get my stuff. I want people to get good stuff and enjoy it. I don't want them to have to pay through the nose for it. Excellent. Well, I'm going to be looking for that uh, Churchill book. In the US, Last Cavalry. Give Last Ca- Great guy, Dave Youngquist. He'll, uh, he'll sort you out. Excellent. Well, Chris, thank you so much for being on with us. And it's been a fun discussion. And uh, we look forward to hopefully having you back on the posse again. Thank you.
All right. Thanks again to Chris for stopping by the show and really letting us get to know him. That was an awesome interview. Well, that's about it for episode 22. Thanks so much for listening. Just a reminder that you can leave us feedback about this or any of our other episodes over at our Plastic Posse Facebook page. You also email email us at plasticpossepodcast at gmail.com. We want to once again thank all of our supporters, and we also want to give another shout-out to our sponsor, Goodman Models, makers of the awesome Super Sandy Blocks. Coming up for episode 23, make sure you join us again next time as we return to Wargaming Miniature Painting, for real this time, with a featured interview with Christoph Eichhorn, a.k.a. Trevarian Miniatures. He's a fantastic mini painter and also a master of teaching techniques from YouTube. So until next time, here's looking forward to another episode with you guys in two weeks. Take care and yeehaw! You practiced that, didn't you? Was that your first yeehaw? Yes, I it think was. it was. We got t- 22 goddamn episodes in, and you just now got a yeehaw. <laughs> I got a yeehaw before you. That's bullshit. <laughs> I need a cigarette after that. <laughs> <laughs> that was funny. <laughs>